I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You're listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and produced by Nicholas Live. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? Gentlemen, you are live. Dude, we are live sitting here tonight with Jim Jones shirt. Nice shirt, buddy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I didn't think I noticed, did you? Uh, I mean, I don't know that you would know what it was. It's your buddy thing. No. I know we've talked about it with Jeremy Foster. Yeah, I think maybe I mentioned it with him. Yeah, yeah. So Jim Jones, your shirt. Yeah, you'll find those buttons. I'm sitting here right now, though, with a guy named Tom Noonan. Tom, I've known you for, gosh, I'd say seven, eight years now. And uh, I do want to share a little of your background. I know you primarily because of the tandem world. What is your job? And then we'll get over work. So I'm the Tandem Program Director for United Parachute Technologies. We, I think we met PIA, yeah, like you said, seven, eight years ago, and I've uh, been working with all the Tandem manufacturers on and off since 2006, um, helping with some of the standardization of training syllabus and currently the Tandem Examiner standardizations that we're going through these days. UPT, uh, United Parachute Technologies, a lot of our, our uh our listeners don't always know, is by far the largest tandem manufacturer in the world. And the majority of us who do tandems are jumping UPT rigs. And I think UPT did a, did a really good job. I'm going to kiss your ass for five seconds now. Uh, did a really good job with running the tandem department, but the general manager also ran the tandem department, and he keeping up with that was hard. So they brought you in 2014-ish? Yeah, January 2014. Yeah, and uh, I will say, as a guy who deals with UPT tandem stuff a lot, it has been a tremendous help having somebody who's dedicated to that program. Well, I appreciate so, that. Thank you. And uh, nerdly enough, we met the day before Safety Day 2012. That's, don't, yep, yeah, don't ask me how yeah. I remember. <laughs> uh, that was also the day a tandem had a Collins lanyard snag on an exit. Um, you were here passing through on your way back to the land and we uh, met there at that anyways. Not well, that DJ I, was paying that. any attention no. to the moment. As long as I didn't pack it, I'm okay. No, <laughs> I just, rem- th- there's certain things that stand on my mind and, and what stood out is the incident you and I were talking about that day. Yep. It just happened to be that that problem. Let's get past that. So that's what you do for a living, but what, what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Um, Let's see. I'm actually learning to fly right now. I've got 40 hours of um, Get flight that time. Mic up in your in your oh, grill. Okay, mic up in the grill, up in the beard. So I'm learning to fly. Uh, I have a Cessna 172, and I'm about this close to taking my tests and uh, getting my private pilot's license. How many hours are you at now? A uh, 41 in total. I, I know you regularly will post uh, things. I, I do see it and, and try to at least follow okay. what my friends are doing on there. Uh, other than that, paddleboard, stand-up paddleboard. Yeah, sta- stand-up paddleboarding with Julie, my girlfriend. Um, we live on a little canal in New Smyrna Beach. So the rare instance when I'm home and the sun is out and it's not too hot or too cold, we go out in the paddleboards and uh, hang out with the dolphins in the intercoastal river. So not a bad life to have. So how, how skilled are you on that paddleboard? Yeah. I fall off every time. Okay, good, because I've only been on one one time on vacation with a girlfriend. The girlfriend's quite the yogi. She's got pretty amazing balance, and uh, I couldn't stay on that thing. Well, much like canopy progression, I think there's a wing loading issue with wake or with uh, paddle boards. I was 180 pounds when I bought it, and I'm 225 now, so I think I just weigh too much for it. <laughs> it yeah, it's like a, every time I go out there, I'm in the water. I've wanted to try it. Is it something? I mean, 
That's fun. I mean, we were trying to do handstands on it and stuff like that. Yeah, that, you've got to watch I mean, this guy do handstands. That's how he met his fucking I, girlfriend. I, I think I could just, like, if you were just to kneel on this thing and paddle around, yeah, it's not too bad. Okay. But, but the higher your center of gravity is, the more difficult it comes to stay on the board, and the more you add movement into that, the more it's moving around. Yeah. I wasn't good at it, let's just say that. I uh, grew up in Hawaii for a little while and learned to surf in Hawaii and didn't do tons of it afterwards because of that balance thing you mentioned. Yep. You know, I it, I got sick of trying to get back up on the board every time I fell over and over and over again. So the stand-up paddle board, I was just like, ah. But I also, it's a much bigger, floatier board than what I was on. Yep. You really led right into where I want to go. You said, when you're home. So first of all, Thank you so much for joining us tonight because you just got home last night after being away from your wonderful, and Julie is such a wonderful girlfriend. Uh, how long were you away from home? If you ask her, a month, uh, three weeks and four days from my count. She's right. It's a month. We know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Round up to a month. Yeah. yeah. So you've been gone for a month and yeah. you got home last night and here you are the, the next yeah. day. 35 hours commuting back from Kathmandu. We left 5 p.m., like I think I don't even remember the day. I think it was 5 p.m. Monday night, and I got in 6 p.m. Monday night. So basically, time traveling went back in time, but it's a 10 hour and 45 minute time zone difference between Kathmandu and I see, between Kathmandu and Daytona yeah. Beach. So 25 hours plus 10 hours and 45 minutes. I uh I I love traveling. I've been very blessed. I've never really suffered from jet lag or any of the problems that come with it. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's the cocaine. I'm not sure. Uh, but it still blows my mind at what we deal with and what yeah. we endure. E it suffer jet lag or not, it's just painful. So you said you were coming back from Kathmandu, and a lot of our friends who are listening to this, whether it's now live or, or after the fact, we've advertised why you're here, ever skydive. And that's one of the first things that had happened when I met you in 2012. You were sharing some stories with me from there. So you've actually made skydives at Mount Everest. I have, yes. Well, not technically on Mount Everest, but beside Mount Everest. Um, we've been going there since 2008. This was my 13th expedition in 10 years. And each trip is anywhere from two to four weeks, depending upon how many people sign up, how long we're out there. Um, weather plays a big deal in it because ultimately, if Mount Everest doesn't want us skydiving in the Himalaya, the weather will not allow us to, to skydive. Whether yeah. it's the jet stream, uh, clouds, rain, snow occasionally, we're at the mercy of the weather systems when we're out there. So in those 13 expeditions, how many of them have people not jumped at all? Zero. Uh, we've had a 100% success rate with our jump program. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we expect there's going to be some weather delays. So we build that into our, our jump day program. Typically, we could get our jumps done in a day, day and a half, if we run the helicopter eight hours straight. But that never happens. We realize we're going to get two or three hours to jump day one, maybe no jumps on day two, and then four hours on day three. So we, we give ourselves anywhere from three to five days of a window to get our jumps done before we head up to Everest Base Camp. And as basically as a offshoot to that, we, we ask people or we give them the opportunity to then trek to Everest Base Camp, which is another five to six days. So if we see the weather's going to be really terrible for skydiving but great for trekking, we'll start them on their base camp trek and do that first and then have them come back for their skydiving when they're done 
going up and down to base camp. Wear out my legs before I got land at fifteen grand. Exactly. I yeah. see what you're doing. <laughs> uh-huh. I see. Um, I, I it's so hard because right now I want to ask some of the most legit questions about the Everest, but I really don't want to lose some of this backstory. How did Everest skydive come to even be a thing? So. A lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time, at least for me anyway. Uh-huh. So back in 2008, I don't know if you're familiar with dropzone.com. They have yes. ba- banner ads on the top of dropzone.com. And I think it might have been January of 2008, maybe even late 2007, banner ads started showing up on dropzone.com for Everest Skydive, what the original company termed the first Everest Skydive because it was going to be the first time people would ever go up there and make skydives in the uh, Himalaya. And... I think like a lot of skydivers at the time, I was intrigued by it. And I clicked on the link, looked at the website, saw some of the stuff they were doing, but it was incredibly cost prohibitive. I think at the time in 2008, they were charging $30,000 per participant, whether it was a tandem jump or a sport jumper. And, you know, being a full-time skydiver, that was a little bit out of my price range by like (laughs) (laughs) $29,900. So... I just kind of looked at the banner ad, thought it would be something cool to do, and didn't think twice of it. Fast forward about eight or nine months later, it's September of 2008, and my phone rings at like four in the afternoon, and it's the organizer of the event, and it's a gentleman from the UK. He was a, a climber with a lot of ties to Nepal that found skydiving later in his life, you know, like a 50-something, 60-something skydiver. Had a couple hundred skydives and knew the community of skydiving through that experience and decided he wanted to merge the two, you know, his love of Nepal and Mount Everest and skydiving. So they created this uh, this first ever skydive event. And he, so I, a phone rang and it was the, this organizer and he said, listen, I need to rent some tandem systems for this event. It's the first ever civilian halo skydiving in the middle of the Himalaya. And I remember thinking at the time, like, okay, I knew I knew about it and didn't really know what they wanted of us other than equipment. So I said, great, let me think of a of a appropriate lease price for you, and let's get back together tomorrow morning. So hung up the phone, walked down the hall. I was working for Strong Enterprises at the time for Ted Strong, and I walked down the hall and I explained to him the uh, unique request that we just got. Asked him if he wanted us to participate in it, and I remember him saying. We can send the gear out, but we don't know any of these people, and I think that we should send someone out there, probably you, to <laughs> oversee it to make sure that there's no um, that there's no issue with the gear. And I remember wow. him sitting back in his chair, th- and he smiles, and he says, you know, if I was 10 years younger, I'd be the one going, and I'd leave you here at the factory, but one of us has to go out there and make sure they don't misuse the gear. So that was the plan when they called back the next morning that I was going to tell them they can have the gear, but as part of that process, I was needing to go out there as strictly an observer with no jumping involved, just to observe the process. So I left work that night, came in the next morning, and let's say we opened at 8 o'clock. At 8.01 a.m., you know, five or six hours behind uh, the U.K. GMT time zone, the phone rings right at the open of business, and it's the same uh, person I spoke with the night before, and he said, Tom, I've been thinking about this, and I need to have you out there along with the equipment. You're the program director of the gear. We need to have you out here. You know, we're going to cover all of your expenses. Just fly yourself out here. So I thought, great, okay. My boss said it's okay to go. These guys want me there. So I started making plans to go out with zero expectation of being a skydiver or jumping, just happy to be there and watch the whole thing happen. And I think in retrospect, they didn't 
forecast their staffing well enough for the volume of tandems that they had, just realizing that at that altitude, that first year we were going to 30,000 feet, and at that altitude, at the time, the, uh, the basic understanding of high altitude jumps like that was that two to three jumps a day was max. You couldn't do any more than that without risking you know, serious dehydration, other potential fatigue factors. And again, all this is above my pay grade. You know, I don't have the, the medical background to speak intelligently, but they just told us two to three jumps and that was it for the day. And I think they started doing the math on that early and realized they weren't going to get through their program, but they also had another tandem instructor and me there on site. So before we even got onto the mountain, I found myself getting measured for a jumpsuit and I started to get suspicious <laughs> that they might actually be asking me to, uh, to come up there and jump for them. But the other part of it, too, is I learned y people go down up there quite quickly, whether it's food poisoning, altitude sickness, injury. You know, it's really easy to have a full staff lineup day one, and by day three, you're missing two or three key people. So it was really, I think, a good staffing decision to have backups. It's just something we've learned over the years, having more multifaceted people. So we were up on the mountain. It took us about three days to get up to where we were going to start skydiving. And when the time came to integrate the uh, oxygen systems, this civilian oxygen system, into our tandem system, uh, everyone wanted me to go first. <laughs> you know, it was the first time that we were going to jump this. And I remember a teammate of mine back then. Her name was Lucy Fenton from the UK. Lucy was the marketing manager for this, uh, this program or the marketing representative for the program, public relations. And so they said, Tom, why don't you and Lucy go make a skydive? make sure all this stuff works up there. So <laughs> Why don't you go be a guinea pig? Yeah, it was basically what we did. But they were saving that first jump from 30,000 feet for one of the guests and totally understood that. So they were going to drop us at 23,000 feet, which was still pretty cool. So I made the first the tandem jump in Nepal at 23,000 feet over the Himalaya and was out of a Pilatus PC-6. I remember you know, sliding the door open and turning on jump run, you know, kind of positioning Lucy and myself. And she was also a, a sports skydiver, so I had a great partner in this. You know, she was helping me. Do everything. easy. Yeah. Easy until I turned 90 degrees out the, the right wing and saw Mount Everest just staring back at me. And Ooh. I had just read an article about Colonel Joe Kittinger um, and his famous jumps that he was doing. And on the last jump that he made, you know, the record-setting one, he said in the article, I read that he said that he uh, closed his eyes and he said a short little prayer that said, Lord, I'm in your hands now. And then out he went. So I admittedly, I, I, I borrowed that little prayer from him, said, Lord, I'm in your hands now. And out I went and, you know, set the drogue. Everything was good. All the gear checked out. I was happy. Uh, Lucy was happy. And, you know, we, we opened the canopy. Now we're flying around at, you know, 17,000 feet. The entire Himalaya is out there in front of us. And I remember thinking, man, I really made a good decision leaving the bank and going to work for you know Strong Enterprises because I was yeah. a banker at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we landed and everything was great. And then they started the program the following day. And there was two other tandem instructors that were operational there, but they had about I want to say maybe twenty to thirty tandems that needed to be done. It was a big event. And day one, they just said, you know, step in. And I started uh, in this rotation with these two other guys. And I think I ended up making something like 15 to 16 tandems that first year. And it was absolutely amazing. But to get back to Colonel Kittinger, when we got home, everybody, after being up there in a month, day one, who do I walk into Strong Enterprises and see Ted talking to? Joe. Colonel Joe. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, Ted kind of smacks him on the shoulder and he says, listen to the story. Hey, Tom, tell him how high you went. And, 
And I proceeded to tell the whole story, and I said, yeah, we were exiting at 30,000 feet. And Joe kind of starts laughing, and he goes, put another 100,000 on there, and then come talk to me, you know? Like, and if I told him about how I borrowed his, his uh, prayer, you know, that was the last thing I said. I said, you know, Colonel, I'm honored to have read your, and I'd never met him before. I said, I'm honored to have read your, uh, your article and to learn more about you. And I just want you to know that while I wasn't as high as you were, I was still pretty nervous, and you know, your little prayer gave me kind of a calming sense. And I said it, and out the door I went. And you know, and he, he smiled a genuine smile of appreciation, shook my hand, and said, "Thank you for sharing that." And I've probably only bumped into him maybe ten or twenty times since then. We, you know, because within skydiving, whether it's PIA or yeah. Glenn, but every time I see him, we sit down and we talk, and he always tells me how much he loves the Everest skydive story and what we're doing. And so uh, last time I saw him was probably six months ago at Skydive to Land. His grandson was going to make a skydive. And we just sat and talked at the perfect spot for about half an hour about every skydive, what we're doing. And here's a guy who's literally one of the bravest human beings on the planet. And he's thoroughly engaged in this conversation and wants to know all about what we're doing. I mean, what, a, what an honor. Like, what, hair stand up my arms just thinking about it, that the guy like yeah. that would have such an interest in what we're doing. So that was pretty cool. Colonel, just I, I want to put a little thought for people here. Colonel Joe Kinger is the first guy to jump from. I don't remember how high it was. Do you remember? Right now, my brain's not going to be good with numbers. I've been in a standardization. If only I had a machine that could If you tell only me. had a magic machine. And Colonel Joe held this record forever. At least 50 years or something. Yeah. And Felix Baumgarten was the guy who yep. broke it. And then once again, uh, uh, Eustace. Allen. Yes. Yeah, Allen. Uh, we have uh, August 16th, 1960. He jumped from 102,800 feet. So uh, just over 50 years, this guy held the record. And the stories, man, if you don't know anything about Colonel Joe, look up Joe Kittinger, K-I-T-T-I-N-G-E-R, Kittinger. Uh, Nick will share it in the in the uh, comments. I'll share it in the show notes. But look up the guy. Google him and look at his story and look at the videos that exist out there. I mean, one of the most fascinating stories and one of the most humble dudes. I've, I've gotten to hang out with him as well. And you're hanging out with one of the boys. He's just about 70 years older than me. <laughs> oh, no, not that much. So... Um, now you're skydiving in Everest, but b before we go too far with that, where do you guys, because cause getting to Everest is a whole nother story, because I think I'm going to say it wrong, Amabamalama <laughs> Base Camp. Amadablam Base Camp. Amalama Ding Dong. So <laughs> where do you guys fly into first? So it, it's an absolutely exhausting process to get to where we're going, and in this last trip, we actually had one of our guests um, said to us, you know, you're not really selling a skydive, you're selling an experience. Because the whole process, yeah. from the time you land in Kathmandu until the time you leave, everything is basically challenge-focused. I don't know how else to describe that. Because you start off landing in Kathmandu at Tribhavan International Airport, and it's... if. if New York City had like it's basically like LaGuardia, you know. It's it's just it's as massive and as large and confusing of a place as there can be, in the middle of a very small landlocked country in the middle of the Himalaya. So it's a little overwhelming the first time you get there. Um, you get through immigration, you get your visas, you pick up your baggage, and then next thing you know, you're in Kathmandu. And Kathmandu is like a small New York City. It's got the same amount of uh, motion and chaos and amazement all kind of orchestrating in this crazy harmony of, of people and buildings and and it's just an overwhelming experience to pass through Kathmandu and drive through in your first time there 
And then you spend two days in Kathmandu, and I believe it's 3,600 feet MSL is the, um, is the elevation. So it's not quite Denver, but it is slightly higher than what most people are used to mm-hmm. in terms of uh, basic ground elevation. So you spend a couple of days there in Kathmandu in the mayhem and chaos of this big city, getting all your stuff organized. And then from there, you go back to the airport. You hop on a smaller twin-turbine aircraft, whether it's a Turbolet or a Dornier 228 or a Twin Otter. Um, I've flown in there on a Pac-750 before. I mean, there's all kinds of little aircraft that fly into the Himalaya. And it's a 45-minute flight, depending upon the aircraft, anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes, depending upon the plane you're in. And it's all weather dependent because you're flying into uh, an airfield called Lukla, which is at 9,000 feet. And if you uh, YouTube search the most dangerous airport in the world, it's... Yeah, this this won't even be the first time that we've uh, posted this this same airport. Yeah, yeah crazy landings. We there. actually shared your story of coming here recently. We we talk about our future yeah. guests, and we uh, it took us forever to figure out which airport it was, and we googled that, but Lukla is what we found. Yep. And uh, if you actually look over here to your right, you'll see the right half of the monitor has two pictures. Yep. And what shows up on the right side is what's currently live in the screen. So in in a second, that's going to pop over to Lukla Airport. Yep. Um, while he, he's breaking into it, um, actually, I think he's almost there. Uh, what elevation is this airport at? It's at uh, 9,000 feet MSL. So first of all, you're at a really, and you're about to see kind of a crazy-looking airport, but you're also in really thin air, so shutting down isn't exactly the easiest thing. It's a 1,200-foot airstrip. The first 900 feet are at approximately a 15-degree uh, angle upward, and then the last 300 feet or so is the um, basically the apron before you hit the wall. And... <laughs> These guys are coming in, amazing pilots, super talented. And while I've never landed on an aircraft carrier before, I can only imagine that's as close as a civilian's ever going to get to the feeling of trying to land on a, an aircraft carrier, a tight little space. There's no go-arounds. Uh, and the, I said these pilots are incredibly talented, so dedicated to what they do. And it's all weather dependent. Like once they've committed, they're, they're landing. I mean, there's no, um, there's no ILS. It's all VFR flight, and they're just dropping themselves down onto this runway, an upward climb as soon as they land. You know, they're going uphill. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, it's every time 13 landings in there, hands on the <laughs> the, the, the seats, just, you know, kind of white knuckle on it going in. It's, it's nerve-wracking. You ever think about, yo, just let me out a couple thousand feet higher. I'll take care of this, boys. <laughs> you know, if you saw the terrain around it, the answer would be no. It's uh, all... That sketchy. Unlandable, yeah. I don't know if you recognize the fellow who just walked in behind me at all, Hugh Funk. Yeah. Hugh, I'll say hello to you in a minute, my friend. Um, so, Lukla, am I saying that right? Yes. Is Lukla. where you guys fly into. Yep. And uh, how long are you guys here? Actually, uh, Nick's going to have this up on the screen here in a second, Mr. P. They're on approach right now, right? They're on final? Yeah, they're about 200 feet from landing. This is the best angle I've seen. Just to the right of that runway is a helipad, and that's the coolest thing that we're uh, able to do there is that once we um, get back to Lukla, if we're weathered in, the company we work with is a helicopter company, Fishtail Air. So we always try to go back out on the, the turbines, on the, the, the fixed wing, but if for some reason we can't, we have access to helicopters that can bring us back to Kathmandu and in nice. completely IFR conditions. There's a river, apparently. It's a, I don't know if we call that RFR, River Flight Rules. <laughs> they can fly up the river to the, the slope there, come up to the runway, come in and pick us up in completely whited out conditions with clouds. It's a pretty amazing experience. That's cool. That would uh, be terrifying that I'd have to get out that way, but be awesome. It's just got to be a phenomenal ride. What plane is that right there? That's a Dornier 228. Okay. 
and and it uh it is a side door aircraft, correct? It is, yes. Okay. So you guys fly into Lackla and how man that was a hard landing. That I think is the scariest angle I've seen of it so far because you really get an idea for the the incline of the runway. Yeah, I mean it, it's basically if you're not pitching up a little, climbing a little bit, it looks like you're just smacking in every time. At the end, at the end of the, what's that? That's where that runway ends. Yeah. Does that, that runway basically drops off to a sheer edge? Yeah, it's about a 3,000 foot drop off. It's not vertical, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I have a tracking suit on, I could probably make a base jump there. Maybe not want to, but the cliff face I could. No. Okay. <laughs> It'd be your first and last if you did. <laughs> oh man, I wanted to try it twice. Um, so you guys fly in here. How long are you in Lackla? So we usually get there. The, the hope is we get in nine o'clock in the morning. And like I said, everything's weather dependent. Of the thirteen times going in there, probably four of them, you get to the airport at six o'clock in the morning and you wait till twelve. You just sit there for six hours waiting for the weather to clear. And if the weather doesn't clear, you get back in a van, you go back to your hotel, and you try again the next day. And that's happened once in 13 trips where the weather just didn't cooperate. It's beautiful in Kathmandu, but Lukla's weathered in, and if they can't see the runway, they can't land. But typically, we'll land between 8 and 9 o'clock. We will spend about three hours there. We'll have breakfast and then maybe even lunch. And then around 12 or 1 o'clock, we will then head over to the first village that we're going to sleep in, called Fakting at 8,400 <laughs> meters. Sorry, I'm immature. P-H-A-K, Fakting, D-I-N-G. And so that's our first uh, stopover. Uh, it's about 600 feet below the airport. It takes about two and a half hours to get there. So you're hiking. Yeah, it's a nice leisurely walk. You can walk in sneakers. I mean, we recommend hiking boots, but people do it in sneakers. The Sherpas do it in flip-flops. You know, So it's really just a matter of how you know healthy you are, what kind of shape you're in, and I guess what kind of... Uh, Ankle issues you may or may not have. I do it in a jet pack. That's how. <laughs> what's that's the condition I'm in, buddy. <laughs> so, two and a half hour hike into fucking fucking P H A K fucking. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to make say that. Yeah. And now you guys are spending the night here. We are then spending the night. That is correct. And how long are you guys there for? We usually get there around four in the afternoon, and we'll have dinner. By then, everyone's typically tired. Not so much from the trekking, but just from the Oxygen, you know, it's a slightly higher oxygen level, uh-huh. excuse me, slightly lower oxygen level than you're used to. So people tend to be a little bit more fatigued than they, they think they should be. And so we t- typically have dinner. Everybody's out by 8 or 9 o'clock, sound asleep, and then up at 6 o'clock in the morning for the next day's hike. That's w- so kind of curious, and that's where some of those questions were leading, is how much acclimation does it take? Do you guys spend some time around 9,000 feet to acclimate, or is that day kind of getting you there? So... This is my own personal take on it. It's my been my experience that when people spend more than a, more than a delayed jump run above nine thousand feet, you know, when they're up there for three or four hours, the body starts to get a little bit panicky. It starts to you know a little bit uh, anxious. You know, I think the physiologically or the physiology of the body realizes that we're not getting the oxygen we were getting you know three hours earlier. So. People start to get a little nervous, a little bit tense, a little bit anxious, just for, and it passes. But I think everyone goes through a mild trauma that first morning as they're waiting for the, you know, that 9 a.m. to 12 o'clock, those first three hours at that altitude. It's mildly traumatic to the body and to the mind. And then once you settle in, you kind of, I think your body figures out that this is the new normal. And then it starts to make preparations to handle it. So usually by the time we get to that first evening, and again, 
Uh, the idea being you go high, sleep low. So we land at 9,000 feet, we sleep at 8,400 feet. So you're getting a slightly higher oxygen level at 8,400 feet than you are at 9,000 okay. feet. So when your body's replenishing, you're letting it. You're giving it that extra yep. fuel you can. Have you really noticed a difference? People who regularly, actively skydive, not your, not your regular occasional skydiver, but your extremely active skydivers, have you noticed them acclimate any differently at that point? Not at all, nope. Because, I mean, we're not really up there for more than a few minutes. If everything goes right, maybe for 10 minutes if we really have a long go around. Right. So now where do you guys head next? What's the next stop? So we get up the next day. Day two is probably the longest day of trekking. It's an eight-hour day. We usually leave around 8 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to go from 8,400 feet up to 11,500 feet that day. So we're going to trek upwards of 3,000 feet. And it's not straight up it's up then down up then down kind of you know a little bit higher a little bit lower and the first half of the day isn't that bad it's mostly along a river line so you're a little bit up a little bit down but then after lunch we basically go from 8,500 feet up to 11,500 feet all in one push minus occasionally stopping to rest I don't want to sell it more than what it is anytime people are tired we stop and I'm always in the back of the bus making sure that people one Nobody gets left behind. And two, if I'm the last one up there, nobody feels terrible about being the last one to get to where we're going. And you can carry me, right? Yeah. Sweet. Because you'll have to carry me. I have carried a few people's backpacks for them. Uh, We try to warn people not to put too much weight in their packs because a 25-pound backpack at sea level is not going to be that big of a deal. But you put that same 25 pounds at 9,000 feet or higher, it starts to feel like 30, 40, then 50 pounds pretty quick. Man, just the little things you just don't think of. I mean, uh, you say all these things, and it makes, I'm thinking like, duh, it makes sense, but I would have never thought of it, you know? It makes sense after you tell me. <laughs> so that's, that's how smart I am. Um, this eight-hour trek, you're going, the, you said the last half of the day, that's where the basic big climb comes. How steep is this climb? Is it something that you're using your feet only the whole time? Are you having to grab on and use your hands? Are there stairs? We're not doing any technical climbing, so it's all just trail climbing or trail hiking, okay. essentially. Uh, 50-50, people use trekking poles. Uh, half do, half don't. It really just depends on your overall fitness level. Uh, age, too, I guess, could be a factor. But really, it's just uh, everybody's individual. We recommend people bring trekking poles with them and about half of them do okay it's uh i'll bring three and, and they'll both be jet powered dude I, that's uh i have to get in shape before all this comes down i'll talk to you later about that statement getting in shape um when you're doing this trek this uh, one of the really most interesting things to me for this whole conversation is love as much as i love the, the everest skydiving idea is these people you've met. You just shared a picture of a young man who you met when he was two, and he is now 12. Subash, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you, you definitely like that picture. W- where did you meet this kid, and tell me the experience with these, these folks? So the Pinjo family is the family that owns the airfield that we operate out of. Well, they own the lodge on the airfield that we operate out of. And we've been making friends up there for 10 years, and it's amazing with modern technology now, especially with Facebook, how you can stay in touch with people throughout the course of the year. I just met my friend Nima's uh, son for the first time about a week ago when we were back in Kathmandu. Here's a, a friend that I met up on the mountain, up in Namshi Bazaar, up in the upper Himalaya. His family, like most of the families, they have their businesses in the Himalaya during the, uh, the busy season, but they also have homes back in Kathmandu when they're kind of like off season, if you will. And so I'd met Nima 
in 2008, the first year we were there, he was working at one of the businesses in this little village on the side of the mountain. And we, we just started talking and hit it off and just started, you know, talking about U.S., talking about Nepal and everything. And then little by little, started to, each time I go back, I'd, I'd meet his friends and his friends would meet my friends because, I, as you've seen, I tend to bring people over there with me um, that I think would be a good fit from time to time. And we're always trying to share this experience with new people. So we've created this extensive network of friends over there. And the Pinjo family, being one of the core groups of, uh, of friends we've made there, every year the father and the mother, they would be waiting for us. They knew approximately what day we'd get there. And we arrive at you know the drop zone's 12,350 feet MSL. We're exhausted, and we can hear... The father, you know, he get this big bellowing voice, and he'd be yelling, "Tomb, tomb!" Because I'm Tom here, I'm Tomb over there, Tomb. And Wendy Smith, my uh, partner in all this, Wendy, Tomb, Omar, Dirk, and they'd be yelling our names from across the runway. And then we get up the hill, and they get these big, massive bear hugs for us, you know. Nice. And so, generationally, typically you have multiple generations in the same household. So at the family Pinjo Lodge, you had. Father Pinjo and Mother Pinjo, who were the essentially the, the grandparents, if you will. The, the, then there was the, the Pinjo children, a brother and sister, their husband and wives that they were married to. And then Subash was the son of uh, the son of the son, so was the obviously the grandson of Father Pinjo. And the first year we met him, he was this holy little terror, just running around <laughs> running around the Himalaya, getting into our parachutes, uh, stealing our rubber bands, you know, just making a mess of everything, you know. And so, uh, but he was just adorable, and you know, you just couldn't resist this energy that this little kid had. We're all, you know, dying up there trying to walk ten paces, and he's <laughs> literally running circles around us the first year. Um, and then each year thereafter, you know, he growth spurts. He'd get taller and taller, and more and more uh, from that memory we had of this little kid running around, this little two-year-old running around, causing mayhem and chaos to this young mountain man now you know he's the next generation up there and you know each year we saw him get taller and taller and he as he's going to school getting smarter and smarter you know but this year um, was really kind of like a turning point 10 years later and I, that picture of him and I sit flying that I posted on Facebook it's one of my favorite pictures of the whole expedition because if you could have painted that entire day if we could have panned out and saw that entire day it was just a group of skydivers a group of the local um Nepali families from the mountains, all of us together just had this big, great, fun day together. You know, they were super supportive of what we were doing, and we had become friends with them over the, those couple of years. I think that photo where we're sit flying, he's probably four or five, so we've been coming back there a couple of years. And it was just this tremendous sense of community amongst all of us. Like, we bridged this gap. We were not guests anymore. We were now welcomed as part of their family. And that's really, I think... Um, the most emotional part of this whole process for me. I had a photo that I posted on Facebook uh, with Subash at 12 years old, but if you see his father's on the other side, um, and Mika, I believe his name is, M-E-K-A. Now, the dad, this past trip, he put a vice grip hug on me like I ha had never had up there. He was just so happy to see us. He came trotting out from where he was working when he saw us and just never stopped until he hit me. <laughs> And then put his arms around me, and he said, oh, "Tom, I'm so happy to see you guys back here. You know, we've been waiting for you, you know, all year to come back, and it's so great." He's just got this mega smile. I mean, he's so happy to see us all, 
And uh, he said, we need to get a photo with, uh, with you, me, and Subash. We got to do that before you leave. And so that was the last day we were, you know, when we're always saying, yeah, we'll, we'll all be together at the same time eventually. But dad's working, Subash is at school. And eventually the last day we're all there. And the machine, the helicopter, had shut down right before we were getting to depart. And I said, this is perfect. we got some of the mountains in the background. So we took that photo. And um, if you look at it, you can see the smile on the dad's face is just like through the roof. He's so happy that we're there, that we're part of the family, that we're, you know, we have this connection with them every year we go back. So it's pretty, a pretty humbling experience, but uh, truly amazing. The machine is that what you just called the helicopter? It is. So it, it, you 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 made a post thanking the machine. <laughs> the machine yep. um, I thought you were calling the team a machine because of how well it functioned together. That's what the folks up there are calling the helicopter is the machine. Yes. So <laughs> I'm learning to be a pilot, right, with all of my 40 or 41 hours, and so the helicopters are referred to as machines. I think it's a short for flying machine. I haven't figured that out yet, but whenever we were talking about logistics, it was where do we place the machine? What time is the machine going to arrive? How much <laughs> fuel do we have for the machine? How many? Um, how much fuel do we have to bring in? So, and at first, when we were hearing it, it, it made me think of this old movie, and I can't remember the name of it, but maybe it was Airplane, where they were talking about they were called helicopters were called Hueys for a while, and then they changed to choppers, and they changed to something else. Like there's always a new name for the helicopter. So this year it was the machine. So that became kind of like a running, a respectful yeah. running joke. I say respectful because the B3 is one of the most amazing flying machines ever conceived by man. And the pilots that fly them are just unbelievably talented. I mean, to fly anything is complicated. Yeah. But to fly a machine like that at that altitude in those conditions, the pilots that we work with are unlike anyone else in the world we've ever had the opportunity to work with. And so out of respect for all that, we still came up with the joke about you know everything with the machine. It was kind of yeah. like became the running joke throughout the, the program. Dude, I have no doubt I'm going to be at the DZ sometime soon and say, hey, what what machine are we on? And there's, yeah. I think, a picture of uh, yeah, Mika. That, that's and, Mika, the father, and Subash, the son. Yeah. And the machine. And the machine. What did you, you said? The a B three. B three. That's a bomber, yo. <laughs> Eurocopter. I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember all this. It's got a lot of names. I've heard it referred to as a squirrel. I've heard it referred to as an A star. B3 is the larger engine of the two. There's a B2, which is the lower, uh, smaller uh, engine, or at least a lower-powered engine. And originally it was Eurocopter, but Airbus bought them back. So now it's an Airbus, uh, formerly Eurocopter, now an Airbus uh, B3. And how big, and this is the helicopter you're using to jump out of? Yep. How, how many jumpers is this helicopter holding? It depends on the size of the jumpers. You could have... Um, you and me's. Okay. Four of me... Five of you. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks. I like that. No, it, yeah, it, it holds between uh, four and five people. Uh, if there were small jumpers, you could probably squeeze six in. We strip everything out of it. The seats, um, everything except for the pilot seat is, is taken out of it. So anywhere we can put people in safely and cleanly in there, we do. I'll get to the exit, but I, I want to get back to, to arriving to this family. Um, I kind of interrupted the trip and the trek to where you guys got. You did your first eight-hour You eight teleported hour day. us from Fakting up to Singboche. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And, and Every was, time you say Fakting, I'm <laughs> sure we're going to enter a very different story. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I'm going to. I have to sidetrack it because I start giggling like a girl at that name. Um, I, I just was trying to figure out when uh, this family came into play. So now you have an eight-hour trek, and 
remind me, please say the name of the city again where the where you guys are trekking to. It's called Namshi Bazaar. <laughs> I'm just staring at him blank, like Namshi. Sh- Namshi Bazaar. So um, okay. it's the last outpost of villages in the, uh, the Himalaya where you can buy basically anything you need. Um, you can buy spare trekking shoes, trekking poles, um, hand sanitizer, anything you, you could have forgotten or lost or broke from the time you left Kathmandu until the time you got to the mountain, it can all be replaced at this little village. Probably expensive as heck. Yeah, everything gets more expensive the higher you go because it's either flown in on an MI-17 or walked up on someone's back, which puts a really interesting perspective on drinking a can of beer that somebody carried on their back you know, up for three days to get up there for you. It, so when it's 4 or $5 for a can of beer, you kind of understand why. It's, it's not... Um, Dude, hike this shit up. Yep. Man... But it's worth it, though, for the one or two beers you might have up on the mountain. Because at that altitude, it doesn't take more than one or two beers to get lightheaded, depending upon who you are. <laughs> I'd take me about half a beer. Yeah. That's depending on who I am. Um, now, the the name of the city that the... Uh, man, I don't want to say the family's name wrong, and so I'm not going to butcher it. Pinjo. 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right, right by the end of the night. Pinjo family. What's the name of the city they're living in? They live just above Namshi Bazaar. Okay. So they actually, their lodge is on the airfield that we operate out of, and that's called the Sangboche Airfield. Okay, that's the Sangboche DZ. Yep. That's Sangboche the first DZ, DZ we're yep. going to be jumping at. Correct. Okay. And how how long are you there before you actually make your first skydives? We spend two days in Namshi Bazaar, and that's at 11,500 feet. And the second day is just a rest day where we really don't do anything. If people are going to start exhibiting uh, altitude sickness um, symptoms, that's where it's going to first start happening at 11.5. And so we really kind of want to give them an opportunity, if they're going to get sick, recognize it early, treat it early, so that when they move on to the higher altitudes, that they're more likely to uh, be in a better position to avoid the altitude sickness. Okay. It's uh a lot, a lot of my questions I, earlier on, you know, I was talking about how much time there is to acclimate. So there is a couple little plugged in sections, whether it's hours at a time, night at a time or yep. day at a time where you're really letting people get comfortable and making sure they're ready to make the skydives. Right. And and now now we're about to jump. How real kind of brief side note, how often are you seeing sport jumpers and how often are you seeing tandem jumpers? What percentages are you looking at here? In the early years, it was majority were tandems. Okay. We had, you know, let's say a ratio of two to one. For every one sport jumper, there was at least two tandems. Today, not so much. Today, it's actually either 50-50 or leaning more towards sport jumping than actual tandem jumping. So, which is kind of a bummer for me as a tandem instructor. I'd like to have 10 tandems up there. But at the same time, the sport jumpers are absolutely um, integral to what we're doing. And the things that they can do far out see far exceed what we can do today as a tandem instructor and by that what i mean is everyone that goes up there to do a tandem ends up with an amazing photo of mount everest behind them the himalaya behind them it's that million dollar photo but that photo is similar in nature each year you know for the people that are, are getting those photos sure what our sport jumpers are able to do that our tandems really can't do up there is they're really able to kind of push the boundaries of what we're doing with skydiving. So this year we had uh, our first dedicated wingsuit flying. We had a wingsuiter a few years ago come up there and make a, a test jump with us, my friend Ozzy Khan from Australia. And that was the legitimately the first wingsuit jump in the Himalaya out of the B3. Uh, but this year was the first dedicated with the outside 
video flyer for the wingsuiter so we could actually get a shot of the wingsuit with Mount Everest in the background. So what that, a dope shot. Yeah, that was insane. That's on Facebook as well. Daniela Yin Yu, she's from Skydiving West. Uh, she made the first wingsuit jump with Wendy Smith uh, flying photo and video for her on that. So that was ridiculously cool. Um, You'll have to tell me her last name one more time. Uh, Daniela Yin Yu, Y-I-N space Y-U. And Daniela's with one L. D-A-N-I-E-L-A. Yeah, there's been some really unique pictures, and I, I'm pretty sure it's you that was on the cover of Parachutist from the Everest. Was that you? I was. It, we've actually had three covers. Thank you, Parachutist. Thank you, USPA. Uh, in 2008, I was on the December uh, cover, making the first one of the first tandems over Mount Everest, and that was a really great shot uh, for Wendy and I because it was the first time we'd ever worked together in that capacity, and she and I have been flying together now, tandem and video, for 10 years, and we just clicked, you know, immediately got into sync with each other 30,000 feet above the ground. And, and that photo, that trip, that was the first time that Everest had ever been published. And I didn't know it was going to be on the cover, but I kind of had a feeling we had a shot to get on the cover. But I didn't know which photo it was going to be because mm -hmm. we'd given them so many. And so that December 2008 cover was, um, it was like to me, just mind-blowing that we, here I was a year ago, not even supposed to be on the expedition, no idea what was happening. And then, you know, f 12 months later, I get a cover shot of uh, Parachutist. And then a couple of years later, Bill Booth came up to me after PIA. Derek Thomas and I had presented our uh, program at the 2011 PIA, I think. We we'd given presentations in 9 and in 11 every off year. But in 2011, Bill came up to me and said, I want to come make a skydive with you guys. So bringing Bill Booth to the Himalaya. That was a pretty amazing opportunity as well. This is before I started working for him. I knew him socially through our skydiving networking, mm -hmm. but still, pretty big deal to have Bill Booth joining you on a trip like this. Fuck yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, Bill ended up getting the cover of uh, Parachutist as well with the first solo jump over Mount Everest. So we had the first tandem, 2008. Then he had our first solo cover of Bill over Mount Everest in 2012. And then last year, in 2016, we came back. There's uh, what I think is one of the craziest uh, shots ever is Omar Al-Hejalan flying head down over the Himalaya. That's a beautiful shot. Yeah, unbelievably stunning. My friend uh, Paul Henry DeBear, uh, PH, he's, uh, he snapped that photo. Him and Omar went and made a two-way free fly. And that, that resulting photo was just unbelievable. So we've had three covers since we started doing this. And um, I don't know if we're going to get a fourth or not, but we have some pretty cool footage that we came back with this year as well. But th as I was saying, the, the sports skydivers can do so many more cool things, like Omar and PH doing the free flying. we got the wingsuiters here. Um, we just had a flag jump for the first time. Uh, a, a new friend, a new good friend of ours, Anas uh, Bakali from Skydive Dubai, he flew the Moroccan flag over Mount Everest, and it was a six-meter by six-meter flag. It was gigantic, 18 feet by 18 feet or so. You saw me doing math. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was the largest. We'd, and we'd had flags before. Uh, my friend uh, Noah Watts from the U.S. Army parachute team, the Golden Knights, he came out last year, and he flew a U.S. flag in the Himalaya um, and got amazing shots of that, and Parachute has published that uh, last year. And prior to that, uh, another friend of mine, uh, Jorge Miklos from... Ecuador, he had flown an Ecuadorian flag a few years prior to that, so we'd had a few flags flown in the Himalaya, but this was the most massive one that required a tandem system for Honest to fly, and so 
we have amazing shots of that. That's all over Facebook now as well. So to see all these cool different things that sports skydiving has afforded us the opportunity to do, my favorite of which, however, is the myself and uh, Dr. Ryan Jackson. He is our um, our trekking doctor. He's also my tandem instructor partner. He and I have been doing this for 10 years together. We were asked to basically uh, shoot a commercial for a local Nepali brand of vodka called 8848. That's the height of Mount Everest in meters. So th- we actually filmed a small commercial for them uh, with the 8848 branding of their logos and fake bottles of vodka in case we dropped it. We didn't want to, one, hurt anybody on the ground, but two, we didn't want to lose a whole bottle of vodka either <laughs> if we dropped it from 30,000 feet. But we've got a couple of uh, short video clips and photos of Ryan and I flying around the Himalaya with our bottles of vodka. That, that was pretty cool. What a horrible excuse to do crazy, silly, fun things, man. I it, know, right? <laughs> it's, it's, if going to Everest wasn't enough, you get to fall right by the mountain. Yes. And if falling right by the mountain was enough, you get to play with bottles of fake vodka while you're at Just, uh, yeah, your life sucks, dude. It, it really does. It's a blessing. I don't know how I fell into this. Literally just picked up the phone at the right time. That being said, though, um, going, kind of going all over the place with my ADHD. That's how this show works. It's perfect. So that first year... Basically, after we got done, the um, the management company imploded, and for one reason or another, it had nothing to do with us, the staff. But Ever Skydive was over. That first one was the last one. It was done. And then shortly thereafter that ended, um, Wendy and myself were contacted by the in-country operations support, a company called Explore Himalaya. They were the ones that had provided all of the resources in-country, all of the um, helicopter transports, all the aircraft movements, all the guides, all the Sherpas, all of our logistics. And they said, look, do you guys want to come back? Just the two of you. You know, We don't need this massive company. We have people interested in continuing on, and we'd like to continue with this Everest project uh, would you want to come back and keep going? So we thought about it, and I remember thinking that one of the things about these extreme sports, and not even just skydiving, but just in general, there's a business model, which it's not a good thing or a bad thing, but the business model has been that you find someone or a group that has a area of expertise internationally, and then they go into a, a foreign location, and they charge lots of money, they hire out the local resources, but pay them their, their minimums of what is needed, as any business would, and then they leave with the lion's share of the profits. And so when we rebooted Everest Skydive in 2009, I was very adamant from my point of participating, and Wendy agreed as well, the same on her side, was that we wanted to change the model of sports uh, expeditions. And the, the theme I come up with, I called it the social responsibility of adventure, of, uh, adventure sports. And that was um, leave more than you take, give back more than you're, you're getting from the, the locals. And so we set out on this massive mission, which we haven't completed yet, but we're getting there. And that was to essentially try to turn this whole project over to the Nepali people, our friends in Nepal. It started with using Nepali aircraft. Originally, we were leasing aircraft from Switzerland. The uh, Swiss Boogie uh, PC-6, beautiful aircraft, um, red, yellow, and it's got the Bretling logo underneath it. That was from our first year. But we had to pay to ferry it in from Switzerland, and that was an incredible cost of getting a PC-6 ferried from Switzerland to Nepal and back. So. Year two, we ended up um, working with a local Nepali airline company called Terra Air and brought in a PC-6. The, the airline actually pur- agreed to purchase a PC-6 
that was going to be used for resupply missions and sightseeing, and we would have access to it while we were skydiving. And then at that point, our pilots then trained the local Nepali talented pilots, the ones that were flying the twin uh, the twin turbines into Lukla, trained a couple of them to drop skydivers. So we had Nepali-owned aircraft, Nepali flying pilots, um, the operational team of Explore Himalaya. It's a Nepali-owned company, all Nepali uh, employees. And then we started training our guides to skydive. So we've got three guides that we've worked with over the last couple of years, uh, or over the last 10 years, uh, Bivik Pandey, uh, DK Bahadur, uh, Christina, and then uh, Pula, Deepak Chalem, I think is his last name, and Pula. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your last name, but there are three Nepali uh, porters and guides, or porters isn't even the right word, are guides and trek leaders. They've been our ground support for the last 10 years, and so we've taught them all to skydive. They've all made solo jumps, all somewhat through their AFF progression, and we're actually heading out to Dubai uh, in February or March to finish uh, their AFF. Badass. Yeah, so we've got, um, these guys are the first Nepali sports skydivers. There's also a group of um, female Nepali guides and um, trek leaders that we worked with that were basically famous for having summited the seven summits. I think that's what it is, the tallest summit on every every uh, continent. And these amazing women, they made skydives with us as well in the Himalaya. So we've brought a lot of attention between the guys and the girls that we work with out there and brought them up in the air, took them skydiving um, and included them in what we're doing with the hope that eventually one day they will become the next videographers, the next tandem instructors. Now, maybe to do a tandem or do a video over the top of Mount Everest is a, is a stretch of a goal for us today, but if we're getting them their tandem ratings and getting them their, uh, their videographer skill sets and coach ratings and things like that, even if they're doing that at sea level, that's still going to be an amazing uh, opportunity for them. And it's uh, going back to that whole responsibility of giving back to the community. We're not just taking all the, the accolades of what we're, we're doing and going around the world saying, hey, look at us. We're actually trying to say, look at them. Look at this beautiful place on Earth, these amazing human beings and this natural resource, the Himalaya, that they've provided to us. We're guests in their homes, literally. Um, and they have welcomed us. And so that was the point, to the turning point for us in 2009 that, yeah, we'll come back. We obviously want to come back, but we want to do it in a way that we're going to feel good about it, both you know, emotionally and, and, and consciously and compassionately about the people we work with. And that's what I'm most proud of. Forget the fact that we've made three covers on parachutists. If the skydiving ended tomorrow, I would not look back on the jumps and the footage. I'd look back on the people and the experiences of, of getting to know this gr great culture and having given more than we took. That I can say with 100% that we've given back more than, we're, than we've taken away um, on a physical level, on an emotional and spiritual level. I've certainly, I think, gotten more out of that than I've given <laughs> because everybody there is so spiritual. It's just such an amazing opportunity to learn about these different cultures. I don't think I'll ever be able to repay that, that, that debt of gratitude as far as um, what I've learned personally from my friends and the people over there. What do you mean what you learned personally about you? About Expand on that statement. All right. I have a friend in Nepal, a friend in Kathmandu. He makes our jumpsuits. So you know, rather than order suits from U.S. manufacturers or other international manufacturers, um, which we would be happily do because all the suits that we build in the sport are fantastic, but we have a local jumpsuit manufacturer, a friend of mine named Rajan Dulao, 
and he builds our jumpsuits every year for us, our Everest skydive jumpsuits. So all the money and that goes to pay his company, pay his employees. Over the years, we've become friends. And about four years ago, we had a couple of days in Kathmandu. And he said, hey, I want to come by and see my factory and see my home, meet my family. So we went through the city. And we get to his village, or we get to his little subdivision where he's got his home factories, kind of like a rigging loft in the middle of Kathmandu, sewing machines everywhere, but they're sewing jackets and jumpsuits together. And out in front of his house, he has two plants, two potted plants in a little walkway leading up to his front door. And one of the plants is a shrine. It's got all kinds of beautiful uh, colors and, and paints on the ground around it, all kind of street art, if you will. And you can tell this one plant means something, that it's definitely had a lot of attention paid to it and that he cares tremendously for it. And right beside it is another plant that doesn't have any of the colors, any of the paints. It doesn't look good. It's dirty. It's dry. It just looks like it's on its last leaf, if you will. And so I said, Rajan, what's the deal with the two plants? Why is one beautiful and well taken care of, and why does the other one look the way that it looks? And he went over to the one that was the shrine, and he started kind of like rubbing the leaves, and he said, Tom, this plant is good for the earth. It takes very little nutrients from the ground, and in return, it gives off a tremendous amount of oxygen. So it takes very little and gives back very much. It's good for the world, so I pray for it, because praying for that plant is praying for the world. You know, he wants the world to be a better place. And then he t turned to the old broken down plant and he said, this one is not good for the earth. It takes lots of minerals out of the ground and gives back very little oxygen. And I keep that one there to remind myself about the, the, the duality, the roles between the two, that it doesn't matter whether it's a plant or a person, you can either take very little and give back very much, or you can take very much and give back very little. So I remind myself every day, I see this as a reminder each day of how to live my life and how life should be lived. So to think that someone, he's a husband, he's got children, he's got 20 employees, every day he takes time to focus his energy. And whether you believe in prayer or focused thought or en directing your energies towards something to create a positive outcome, every day he takes time out of his day to pray for this plant because it, the plant is good for the world and therefore he's helping make the world a better place. And also wow. on a social level, reminding himself not to be like the other plant. Who would think of that in the, like I've asked myself in the US, myself included, who would have that mindset given how busy we are, how crazy our schedules are, supersizing me, you know, all that stuff going on here in the US. Yeah. And here's this guy who's wise beyond his years and he's got two plants in front of his house. I mean, it just amazed me. I was so humbled by that moment. I almost felt embarrassed to be a Westerner, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's one of my favorite stories of Nepal, in that, and it happened out of nowhere. I didn't expect to have this profound experience. I thought I was going over to have a cup of tea and look at his uh, shop, you know? And say, what the hell's up with your plants? And yeah. all of a sudden, <laughs> he drops a knowledge bomb on yeah. you, because really, that idea of... It's something we talk about regularly on the podcast is being a better person, how, how to live a better life, how to deal with it. And we all have strife. We all, we all deal with our anger. We all deal with our egos. We all deal with these things, some of us better than others. Um, but that, that is such an awesome statement. I want to be the plant that takes nothing and gives everything. I want to remind myself not to be this plant that's destroying. And, and we, we should live our life every day that way. Um, 
now we're making skydives and I, I, it's so hard for me to leave this conversation because now we're making skydives and you guys are landing at, at, the, at the first easy and, and the fun jumpers on average, how many jumps are, are most people making there? Two or three? Well, on average, it's three jumps. Okay. So our typical package is a three jump program onto our Samboche airfield for the discount price of $25,000. But that $25,000 is not just for three skydives. It's for an entire two-week immersion into everything uh, in the Himalaya, everything Nepali. Once someone lands at Kathmandu International, all of their food, hotels, transfers, guides, logistics, everything for two and a half weeks is bought and paid for and handled for them. So sometimes I kind of feel like Tattoo from Fantasy Island, you know, when I'm waiting people show up. I'm waiting for them at the airport with their signs, and I know we're going to give them a life-changing experience, of <laughs> which tattoo. a part of it is. Right? Maybe Ricardo Montalban. Maybe I'm a <laughs> I'm going with tattoo. <laughs> I'm living with it, man. You like that? Yes. Um, so the skydives are actually quite cheap, comparatively speaking, because a lot of that cost is just the infrastructure and what we're doing. And the other crazy part about the price is that I'm flying in a drop zone every year. We've got $100,000 worth of gear. Couple, I think it's like uh, a ton of equipment. 2,000 pounds of gear gets shipped out there every year. The cost just to ship the gear back and forth, insure it, and get it in and out is somewhere around twelve or $14,000 just to get the gear in and out after we've acquired the gear to get, you know, so we're, we're buying gear, we're shipping gear. Then we have to fly our staff in. We have to obviously pay the staff because as much as they'd l- we'd like people to do this for free, it is a job, you know, so we have to house our staff, have to feed our staff, our teammates. So the cost just to start the drop zone is astronomical. And then after that, once we've done all that, we then have to pay tack time on the helicopter every time we send it up. So I don't know the exact dollar amount of cost versus um, expenses, but they're pretty in line with each other. It's pretty close. It's an incredibly uh, complicated and expensive process. But in return, we have the opportunity to make multiple skydives up there. So the, the three jump package is typically one hop and pop which is what we call an acclimation jump. You're in the Himalaya, you're overwhelmed by its beauty, you're overwhelmed by the altitudes. A lot of people haven't jumped out of a helicopter before, so they're making the first helicopter jump. So rather than distract them with three ways or four ways or free flies and stuff like that, their first jump is just a solo jump, acclimate to the oxygen, acclimate to the landing area. Um, We typically put out a load organizer first so they can follow them down for the canopy traffic, understand how to fly the canopy in the Himalaya, and then once they've done that successfully, then they have two more high jumps. And the reason we give two high jumps is that we got a lot of feedback in the past that there was a bit of sadness after the first one was over because they worked up to this amazing experience, this awesome process of exiting over Mount Everest, being overwhelmed by it all, and then being totally deflated when it was over. If that makes sense. Like, you know, they've, they spent all this time, energy, and money to get out there. They trekked in. They did their acclimation jump. They did their high jump. And they all want to go back up and do it again. I don't want to hit it and quit it. Which, I want another piece. Yeah, make, an, yeah, make another jump. So we just decided logistically it, it was actually not that much of a cost differential to just add a third jump to it. So we said, you know what? We're just going to make it standard now. And that way, that last jump is rewarding in, in a different way because now all the nerves are out. They know what to expect. They know what they saw. They know what they might have missed. Maybe they missed looking at a certain mountain in a certain way. So giving them that second high-altitude jump is kind of like the icing on the cake or the cherry on top. All-out helos. What's that? All-out helos. Yeah. All-out of a... Yeah. A helos, not a helos. All-out of machines. 
You sound like a redneck <laughs> lately, buddy. Just saying. Um, all, all out of the machine. The machine. <laughs> the machine. You know who uh, uh, Kurt Bright, Bert Kreischer? Wow, I got those letters backwards. Bert Kreischer is? No. The machine. You know where I went with that, Nick? Yeah, he's, uh, he's a really funny stand-up comedian. He's got uh, a story about going to Russia. Russia, yes. Okay. Yeah, I just know yeah, the name the of that machine. story. I showed that, that video to people on the mountain this year. Yeah. Oh, my God. That that it's That is such a fun story. So... You guys, and we'll, we'll stay here because eventually we'll talk about jumping a little bit higher, but normally I jump an 84 and 120 square foot parachute. I load them about one, I've lost a bit of weight lately, so I think I'm at one seven now on the 120 and about a uh, two four on the on the 84. And uh, that, that's why I normally jump. I'm going to go make a skydive in Everest with you guys. What size would you recommend I, I, I jump up there? So when we first started, we really didn't know what we didn't know because there really hadn't been any practical or published structure or documentation on what appropriate wing loadings were. So year one, we were looking at 330s, 360s, uh, F111 fabric or low permeability fabric, and um, we found out very quickly that was actually too big. There is such a thing as a parachute that is too large up there or too underloaded to perform well and to land well. So we started getting smaller and smaller in the parachute. So... Today, for example, and I'm 225 pounds without gear, um, I'm jumping a 230-square-foot uh, silhouette, and I could probably jump a 210 and be okay with that. But year one, I was jumping a 280-square-foot uh, navigator. And some of it is learning to fly the wings at those altitudes, but yeah. the majority of it is simply the wings themselves have an efficiency at that altitude, which is almost identical to what it is at sea level. Now, I wouldn't jump a Valkyrie 96 up there. Oh, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, just to interrupt, I was yeah. going to ask, what, what canopy do you normally fly when you're just uh, fun jumping here in the States? So my normal two parachutes were a Valkyrie 96 and a Storm 120. And I jumped the Storm 120 more than the Valkyrie simply because I did a lot of traveling in different locations. I still travel all the time. And landing off in, in different countries and different locations, I've always felt better under my Storm than mm -hmm. under a high-performance wing. Because you know you never know where you're going to end up. So I was jumping a, a Storm 120 for years. Absolutely, my most favorite parachute I'd ever owned. And when I used to, I used to work for PD uh, 2011 through 13, I always said that if I was never working for them, you know, if I ever ended up doing something else, that my Storm 120 that was the favorite parachute. I'd, and I got a chance to f fly almost all of them, short of the uh, Peregrine. Uh, but the Storm was amazing. And I bought it at 185 pounds. And <laughs> Then I got to 190, and this is all over the last you know four years. 190, 195, 200, and next thing you know, my exit weight was 250 because I was you know 225 putting yeah. on all my gear, and that storm it was amazing, and it's probably above their recommended wing loading charts, but it was amazing at 1.8. It could sink it in, could swoop it at 1.8. That canopy did everything I wanted it to do, and then I ended up 225 pounds, and I just. At, 2.1 or 2.2 landing it. I was in China teaching a course last year and we were at 4,000 foot elevation or 3,800 foot elevation and every one of my landings was a foot slapper, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, you just bang, bang, bang as your feet hit the ground and I thought I was, I thought my arches were going to fall. You know, it's like, I got to get something bigger. This is just, I finally got to the point where this parachute, I'm beyond its power band. I think I'm just too heavy for it. So um, I just ordered a Storm 135 um, and I'm going to order a Valkyrie 103 just because I'm s just not current enough to be uh, on sport jumping to be 
confidently flying the 96 that yeah. I currently have. So if you're if you're not watching this and you're just listening to it, to be very fair to Mr. Noonan, he's not fat. He is bulky. He's big, big, big bone. <laughs> no, you you do work out a lot. That is you, one of your hobbies. Is is you do like to to get those guns going. Um, you're in, you're the first one to introduce me to uh, Tate Fletcher. Is that his name? Nate Fletcher. C T Fletcher. C T Fletcher. Yep. Tate Fletcher. Is that an actor or some shit like that? Uh, Tate Fletcher is a fighter, isn't he? Tate Fletcher. Uh, I'm gonna have to look it up. C T Fletcher, man. Yeah, that that dude is fucking yoked, dude. Fuck average. Oh yeah. Hey, hold on, hold on. Listen. We can't hear you. You don't exist right now. Oh shit. <laughs> you, I can hear you. There you go. Now you suddenly. So, Tom. This motherfucker is a badass. So he is the number one. He is the representative for UBT. Keep that mic at your face. It's yeah, got to be right, right up here. in your grill. Yeah. Okay, fine. Fine. <laughs> he knows how to fly a tandem parachute. He knows how to fly all the tandem parachutes. And we should all take an example from him from, you know, to how to do tandems. I don't know if I would do that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I think I, I think I'm very comfortable doing tandems, and I think yeah. I'm very good at doing tandems. But I would always listen to Tom. Yeah, well, thank uh, you. I appreciate that too. We'll interrupt for for one second with, with the uh, with Nepal for one moment, just to kind of briefly say and, and back up what you're doing here uh, today and tomorrow. We have USPA standardization meetings. As examiners, yes. we we uh, meet together to make sure we're all on the same page, running our courses the same way. And uh, fortunately, a lot of our friends, Hugh, who was, who was just on the mic, is actually here in town to attend these standardization meetings and making sure we're receiving the right information. And unfortunately for the rest of the world, the two people running the meeting tomorrow are you and I. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, is let that unfortunately or is that fortunately? So in my defense, or in, let me... Because I, I just had a course from, from Tom in June. I just came to the land and... He showed me all the things that were important, and I, I very much think those things are important. Oh, and, I, I, I mock our, our knowledge and, is strong. And, and, and we're and still jerk faces. House and uh, <laughs> geez, you know, maybe maybe I should leave. No, not <laughs> no, kick back, man. You're good. I'm sorry. Not, yeah, you're yeah. good. Not to deviate off of the ever skydive story, but I gotta thank Mark Prokos from 2012 onward. Uh, he was the one that I went to when I was I was working for PD at the time, and the concept of an AFF standardization meeting for IEs had been in place for like a decade, you know, and it was yeah. a critical component for this top tier trainer to be able to sit with other top tier trainers and discuss the pros and cons of what they were doing and affect change. And on the tandem side of the house, we realized back then when I was working for PD, I used to sneak across the street on my lunch breaks and go over to UPT and help out. With Not the just your program. lunch breaks. Let's be real. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> where's Tom? I don't know. <laughs> Find my phone. I, I had to turn off the find my phone feature <laughs> just in case. But I was over there a lot and because I, I was passionate about tandems and tandem safety and, and the industry that we're all so blessed to work in. And we started off in 2007 or 8. I had put together this group of manufacturers, uh, U, uh, Strong Enterprises, UPT, Jump Shack, and we called it you know, the Manufacturer Summit, if you will. And those 16 commandments came out of that, and you know, those originally the, the 19, originally yeah. 19. Yeah. Um, so some of the basic operating criteria we needed to improve on. But then, as time went on, I sort of, myself included, realized that from an examiner's perspective, we had people in the field that had been trained 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and hadn't seen any of the current syllabus information. People were operating off of different materials, and I said to Mark, I said, you know, 
you guys at the time, and even more so now, I said, you know, UPT is the Coke and Pepsi right now. Of It's about 70% of the market. And I think if we lead the, the this movement and require all of our examiners to attend the standardization meeting, we'll do one in Deland at the expo that they had, the Deland Expo. We'll do one at Skydive Paris, and then we'll figure out one more in the middle. But we, we need to get to our examiners. And, and to his credit, he recognized the value in that, and I thank him for that. He made the funding available for us to do the first series of examiner meetings in 2013. And the feedback we got originally was, this sucks. Nobody wanted to take the time off work and miss a weekend of jumping, miss a weekend of courses. To pay for this. Everybody was angry to be there. That was not the, all of us. Most people were. Angry. I agree to that. Most people, most people were definitely unhappy. For me, yeah. I thought it was a good idea. Day one, hour one, I got more fingers poked in my chest. I can't believe we're here, you know. But by the end of this two-day process, every one of those finger pokes in the chest turned around and with a handshake and said, "You know yeah. what? I didn't know what I didn't know. I appreciate the information. This was valuable information, and we move forward." So then, we did it again in 2015, and the the difference then is people kind of knew what they were getting, so it was a lot more focused and a lot more accepted. And to USPA's credit, this time around, 2017, they recognized the value in what we were doing. Yeah. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Ed Scott. They recognized what we were doing, and they offered to basically take over the process and open it up. We, we had always welcomed other examiners from other manufacturers, but now as a USPA process, everyone's required to go, and sometimes you need to poke them with a requirement to get it done. So this meeting tomorrow, the last one we have here in the U.S., and then we've got one more in Germany in December, um, it's invaluable. The, uh, the the information we're getting out, the feedback we're getting from the people. Nobody yeah. wants to be here. Would all rather be home. I'd, I'd rather be home on a paddleboard myself. I'd rather be here. By the way. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather be here. I'd rather be here. It's uh, it's really. Uh, I think it's a great thing that we're doing it. And as the tandem profession, the tandem industry continues to evolve, it's only makes sense that we keep doing this. You know, like pilots Absolutely. have to do biannual flight reviews. And CFIs are, are responsible for training requirements or uh, annual training requirements within the FAA structure. So it's a, it's a good thing. I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of that, that Mark was a spearhead for this. He made it happen. He laid out the framework for it. I was able to take what he provided and turn it into something that I thought was valuable to the community. The USPA saw that value, and they've now taken it on. And so I'm looking forward to tomorrow to see you up there running the show, and I will be there to help I as I will needed. be giving you as many. Jim and I already have a plan. Tom, what do you have to say? Tom, what do you have? That, that is our go-to. That, that, I think that's all the PowerPoint slides. Tom, what do you have to say? Not really. But uh, I definitely have uh, uh, plenty of opportunities for you to take your, your slide. Uh, I only have one real disappointment in these examiner meetings this year. And I say these, the tandem examiner meeting this year. And, and here's my only one real disappointment. I wish every manufacturer would represent and be involved. That is my real heartache. Uh, USPA has now taken over it, and I really believe we could do a great job running this meeting as USPA, because that's who I'm representing this week, without you guys. We're that much better with you guys, and I can't thank UPT and Bill Booth and Mark and everybody and yourself for being here, because imparting this knowledge, I, I stay extremely aware of what's going on. As a matter of fact, you call me regularly as a sounding board, giving me a lot of hypothetical situations to, to, to think things through, because you can't always share the details. Right. And I get to stay really aware and apprised of... So hold on, dude. Nobody can hear you. 
No and one every can time you talk and we have to listen to you, we get dead air on a podcast. So it's like five seconds of dead air. So we'll, we'll get back to that. But the um, God dang it, Hugh, see what you got dang, dang done. I done forgot what I was saying, sing, son of a bitch. A <laughs> um, <the laughs> I need, you need to drink some more of what I have right now. Um, we, we do a lot better with you guys, and, and I can't remember. I, I completely lost it. But, but I can't thank you guys enough for, for what we're doing. I stay aware. I stay abreast of what's going on. That's where we're at. And even with that, it still helps me catch up to what's going on. Even though I talk to you regularly, I deal with the board regularly, I talk with, with Jim Crouch regularly, all the people who are doing these things, I read what I can. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, I me too. Uh I stay aware, and I still gather a lot from these meetings. I There's no doubt in my mind, I don't like going to these meetings. I like going to these meetings. I don't like having these meetings. I love having these meetings, you know, that necessary evil. You Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> it is, man. The one downside yeah. is... At, Every year up to now, I sit in the back of the room, and when, you know, every meeting somebody argues. Every meeting there's that argument where you're like, this is getting stupid. I used to be able to sit in the back and just take a nap when they argue. And I have to stand up front and act like I'm interested, <laughs> which which I, I really am. I, I, but at the same time, you just can't ignore it. You actually have to stay involved with the conversations now. Um, let's get back to Everest. So I, yes. I, I you, you now jump a 230, could, could potentially jump a 210. But you've got 13 expeditions, and how many landings at these altitudes are higher? So I probably should go back and check my logbook, and I, I can't even believe that I would frame it this way, that I've made so many jumps up there that I don't know how many I've made, which is, that, that sounds really shitty to say, you know, because every jump is amazing. Every, sure. But it's been 10 years, 13 trips, um, somewhere between 1 and 200. Okay. Say, yeah. S- significant amount then. Yep. So, I'm a first-time jumper up there. Let's say I go up there in 2018, 2019, 2019, Would, 2019. Okay, so if you're up there in 2019 <laughs> with us, 2019, I'm going to start you off on a 260. Okay. Because... Because you've seen me land. I've seen you land. No, no. Um, and you would be jumping a 210 or 230. Okay. Yep. And that's... I'm, I'm very happy. One of the things I teach as a canopy coach, when you travel, what's different about skydiving in Colorado than Houston... The fucking view, guys. Skydiving is not different. Take the biggest canopy you can comfortably perform with so you can sit and hang out under canopy and enjoy the view, enjoy Mother Nature, enjoy this. As you said, you sat at the door of this B3 and stared Everest in its face. Oh, God, I got a chub. Yeah. And as far as the canopies go, the if you were going to land on the, the airfield, which is a 1,200-foot a dirt strip, sometimes grass, mostly dirt and yak poop, um, <laughs> runway, you could probably land a 170 there safely and stand up landing. But we have to also account the fact that the runway is only about 5% of the potential landing areas there and landing off. Um, going back to my friend Ozzy uh, from Australia, he landed off on his wingsuit jump. Go figure, you know, wingsuiters not, not making it. <laughs> <laughs> wingsuiters don't make it back to the drop zone any altitude. Or <laughs> no. Kidding to all my wingsuit friends. But in this case... Not. But not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we were trying to... Um, it's actually a cool little story. I don't think he'd mind me sharing it. You know, no. uh, I've only got 20 wingsuit jumps. I'm not a professional wingsuit pilot. I can't even really comment on the professional uh, or on like the 
the SOPs of wingsuiting. But like, like I said, my friend Ozzy is incredibly talented, knows his shit when it comes to wingsuits. And we brought him up there as a trial run to see if wingsuits could work up there. And we wanted to drop him a mile from the drop zone, mile upwind of the drop zone, figuring that if he landed off or if he didn't, he didn't have to worry about making it back, basically. But, you know, based on the suit that he had and the, the wing loading on the suit, if that's even the right term, uh, the decision was to drop two miles instead of one mile. And we still have the video somewhere from our camera guy in the helicopter. He got out, put his wings out, and, you know, normally you see them start to glide. He just dropped like an elevator, just the first couple thousand feet, you know, picking up speed, pressurization. I don't know if it was a suit or whatever. But long story short, he landed just short of the drop zone on the side of a hill that had about a 3,000-foot descent to it. And I gave him a 280 to fly. And he said, well, this is kind of big for me. I said, yeah, I'm not worried about what you're going to do with it here. I'm worried about what you're going to do with it if you have to. And I pointed, if you have to land over there, you know, on the other side of the valley. And sure enough, I, maybe I jinxed him. I don't know. But he landed on the other side of the valley. And he came back and he said that extra square footage made the difference between a dirty jumpsuit and potentially getting injured. So we look at these off landings. And what, what do you need to walk away from an off landing as opposed to landing on the airport? Which I guess really isn't much different than sea level skydiving, you know, we should have parachutes that are comparable to landing in someone's backyard, not just landing on a, a clean uh, Thank you field. so much. It's a lot of what we like to share is this knowledge to new jumpers. Two things that you've said so far that stand out to me is, number one, have a parachute for the worst case, not the best case scenario. Yep. The other thing you said earlier is a new jumper to Everest, and I did not know this, but my first jump's going to be a hop and pop. I encourage skydivers in general, whenever you can help it, make your first jump in a new Z DZ be a hop and pop. A, it's the most laid back skydive I know how to do, and B, I just like to chill, check out the terrain, even if I think I can find my way. I just like to have a little bit of time in the air with myself. That, that That's it. You know who else does that? Who? Skydive Dubai. It doesn't matter how many jumps you have, how yeah. experienced you are. Everybody that jumps the palm drop zone has to do a hop and pop first. And I was talking to Alan Gaten, the general manager there, a couple of years ago, and we were discussing it. And he said essentially the same thing. You know, it's overwhelming to be jumping in Dubai for the first time right next to the water, over the palm. You know, and they, they had seen some really talented people make some really untalented decisions. You know, <laughs> so if it can happen in, in that capacity, it can happen in any capacity. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really important uh, process to have in place. Now you've got me landing at 12,000 feet under a, a, a... Silhouette 230. You've 230. got my canopy, yep. Yeah. Oh, yay! <laughs> I got, you got my back. Uh, how high am I exiting from AGL, MSL both? So interesting question. Um, the first three years, maybe four, we had a pack... Uh, we had a Pilatus PC-6, and we were exiting... Is that a porter? Yeah. Okay. Um, we were exiting from twenty nine to 30,000 feet, and the climb to altitude was an hour and 20 minutes. It was exhausting. Um, we had to have onboard console, oxygen, swap over before we exited. Freezing cold, miserable. You're still exiting 30,000 feet over Mount Everest or beside Mount Everest, so it was worth all that uh, heartache. One by one, by no fault of ours, the, uh, the porters were having landing difficulties. That means crashed. Um, <laughs> Nobody got hurt, thankfully, but they crashed both the porters uh, over the years. Uh, one blew a tire on landing. D flying a tailwheel, single engine at a high altitude was a difficult thing. It's tricky in the first I, place. I, I don't know if you know uh, Jace uh, Pekin. He's a Midwestern jumper somewhere in the like, Chicago, Illinois area, pilot, skydiver. He actually purchased one of the fuselages of one of the uh, porters, and they 
put it, they hung it from a MI-17, and they flew it out, put it into a, a container, and put it on a boat, shipped it back to the U.S., they refurbished it, and they built a palatus around it, so a porter around it. So one of our two porters from Nepal, uh, he purchased the, uh, the fuselage, put it back together, and I don't know where it is now, but it's out there flying jumpers again. Man, we're resourceful little scroungy people. Rap, well, rats. for a couple of years, the fuselage just sat on the side of Lukla, the side of the runway there by the helipad, and it was uh, an office, basically. They had, the back was for storage, and the front, they would sit in there and do all their helicopter weights <laughs> and balances and stuff. And I remember Wendy and I were waiting to get picked up uh, one, one year, and we had just the year prior had exited that very fuselage from 30,200 feet. It was the highest we'd ever gone. We had helped uh, one of our guests, Nick Leventis. He's a race car driver. And uh, we helped him set a record for his charity. And we, it was the most technically challenging jump we'd ever done up until that point. And I remember standing in Lukla. We're kind of like just kicking the fuselage gently because Jay had purchased it. But, you know, we're just kind of <laughs> like, you know, just towing the fuselage. And the year prior, it was an airplane. You know, it was an aircraft. And... Here it was just a piece of metal on the ground. And I remember looking at it and kind of like grabbing it and just sort of like shaking it a little bit and how light and how thin it was. And I couldn't believe that we were actually in that box a year earlier, 30,000 feet above sea level, you know, over the Himalaya. And it just, it really, it made me realize how delicate the whole process was, how delicate the aircraft are, the Himalaya, how how serious and how dangerous the environment is, you know, to see this, this piece of machinery that was a multi-million dollar aircraft that was capable of climbing to 30,200 feet was now just stuck on the ground as a tin can. You know, the windshield was out of it and um, the doors were off and it was just this bare piece of metal. I'm like, man, and I, I actually, I moved a couple of the rice sacks out of the way and I sat down where I had sat the year prior at 30,000 feet on exit and I just couldn't believe I, it was the same piece of machinery. So... It was a pretty humbling experience to see that. It's, it's almost got to be a little depressing. It's, yeah, it's like it seeing sad. a loved part of your life. I mean, that's yep. a meaningful aircraft to you yep. now. And it's sitting there just as a wreck. So having, having it revived and revitalized, yep. even though you're not with it, it's got to feel good. Yep. It was, it was good to see it again. Um, but once we lost the porters, we then moved to uh, the B3. And, you know, you make lemonade out of lemons. Is that the right way of saying it? It's been one of the best operational decisions for us in terms of the volume that we can do of bringing people up to the mountain. We can do basically 30 minute turnarounds or less because it's so efficient and it's so powerful. The downside is that the service ceiling for the B3 is 23,000 feet. So we are limited to 23,000 feet in the B3, although prior to having been informed of its service ceiling, <laughs> prior to the, um, they actually changed over a couple of different aircraft or a couple of different um, versions of the helicopter we had over the years. We were going to 24, 25, and a lot of it has to do with density altitude versus, or pressure altitude versus actual um, GPS altitude. So we were dropping 24, 25. A couple of the Nepali pilots had actually taken the B3, the very one that we were jumping out of a few years earlier, stripped it down, turned it into the uh, proverbial flying gas can, and the one pilot flew it up to the, the top of Mount Everest, touched a skid, to the top of the peak of Everest, Jeez. so 29,080-something feet, and then came back down again. So these things can climb amazingly, especially with the lift that's available up there. But for operational purposes, we're limited to 23,000 feet. So now I'm making approximately a, a ten to 11,000-foot skydive. Yes. How high are you guys uh, suggesting we open? 
about uh, 5,000 feet above ground level. Okay. In any particular reason why? A couple of reasons why. And before I, I answer that, we did actually revise our pricing structure to reflect a cheaper price because the B3 was actually cheaper to operate than the Pilatus. Okay. So despite the fact we've lost a couple thousand feet in altitude, uh, it's still the only place in the world you can skydive with Mount Everest in the background. It's still an amazing experience, but we did make it slightly less expensive uh, to basically offset the fact that we're not getting those last couple thousand feet. So the reason we have people deploying at 5,000 feet is that we have the um, AAD set for tandem mode for our sport jumpers. They have a 2,000-foot deployment altitude. And the, excuse me, they have a 2,000-foot activation altitude for the AADs. And the reason for that is the ridge lines that we're operating around are about eight, 800 to 1,000 feet higher than the drop zone. So depending upon where you're getting out, you could have a 750-foot AD activation, but if the ground level is 850 feet, it's not going to do you any good. So we, d we had to make a decision operationally about seven years ago or so that this was how we are going to operate, that 2,000-foot, just like a tandem, 2,000-foot um, AD activation altitude so that if someone's over a ridgeline, which half of our drops do end up based on the prevailing winds, about half of them end up over this ridgeline, or even just with free fall drift, which is difficult to calculate up there because you really don't have the same level of um, aircraft reporting in terms of upper wind reporting. So especially with uh, the tandem and the tandem videographers, we want to make sure that we're not you know, over these ridgelines that are going to potentially uh, cause problems based on that altitude differential. That makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. So, are yeah. you saying that you, you don't allow people to bring their own gear? Correct. We provide all the equipment. It's, okay. it's all provided by uh, UPT and SunPath, and um, yeah, we've had the same gear up there, refurbished and replaced as needed. But we've had using the same can types of canopies, same types of containers for the last ten years. So, just while I'm busy interrupting, uh, what's the smallest canopy that anyone's landed there? Um, Wendy Smith traditionally jumps a Spectre 190 up there, and she's probably 105 pounds soaking wet. So um, Kiwi, right? Kiwi, yeah. yeah. So uh, I've actually, I've, ne I've never asked her. Uh, I've never, oh, whoa, whoa. I've never asked her how much she weighs, because that's just not a, a polite Jimmy, question. Come here. Jimmy, come here, buddy. The dog's on the show. Not a polite question to ask anybody, but I've had to guess 105 pounds. Okay. Uh, I also was, I was curious if you guys have dealt with the uh, cutaway. Up there, and uh, and does it come? I haven't back? had to chop a canopy yet, personally, uh, or no one involved. Anybody. Oh yeah, wow! We haven't had a, a canopy cutaway up there yet. So. Wow! And we have a canopy cutaway team. You know, we've got our guides up there that are ready to go chase down canopies and free bags and things like that. It's an inevitability at some point. It's bound to happen. But given the um, the statistics today, you know, the one in a thousand and one in two thousand malfunction rate. It might be five or ten more years before we see one, but we're ready for it whenever it happens. And we, we actually have um, we have a, a Sherpa that we work with who is a long line uh, extraction specialist. So when people are stuck, like you see in the movies, um, I don't know if you call it sling lining. I believe is the technical term for it. So he hooks up to a harness, helicopter takes off. He hangs about 50, 60 uh, feet below the helicopter. So if we ever need to go into a, a tight location to pick up either person or equipment, then um, we have that ability to do it. I was going to try and sell you on a free trip there, and I'll bring my drone to help yeah. uh, you find some cutaways, <laughs> but it sounds like you got that figured out. Actually, and you know what? I don't want you going to jail. There's very few things you can do wrong up there, but flying a drone in the Himalaya is uh, actually, it's really frowned upon. It's um, one of the worst things that we could do. We've got one of our teammates every year. He brings his drone with him, the DJ, DJI drone, hoping that he can... Uh, 
get permission and every year they shut them down. They yeah. just don't want them up there. Uh, it's not an aircraft thing. They're not worried about um, air traffic. It's the fact that most of the mountains up there are considered uh, god goddesses. They're they're considered deities. Oh, or it's deities. a respectful, yeah. sacred yeah. space sort of thing. Yep. So because the the mountains are are, are considered holy, uh, Mount Everest is a goddess. Uh, the goddess Chomolunga. She's a uh, Chomolunga is her Nepali name. Uh, no, Chomolunga is her Tibetan name on the Chinese side, and Sagarmartha is her name on the Nepali side. But they they pray to her. And we actually, um, we pray as well while we're there. The first thing we do on every trip is we have what's called a puja. And that's where the lamas come down from the monasteries. And they basically bless us, bless our equipment, and ask Mount Everest for our permission to be there and essentially state that our, our intentions are pure. We're just there to celebrate her, celebrate the mountain. And um, these little red uh, knotted cords are part of that process. The lama ties the cord around it. There's a knot in it already. Um, and then the llama ties it around your neck, and you basically leave it on until it falls off on its own, you know, six months or a year later. So we all go through puja. All of the, um, the, the guests, the staff, we get blessed, and then we also bless our equipment. That's a, a normal part of the process. So, like, if you were going to summit Mount Everest, you would take your oxygen cylinders, your rappelling ropes, your ladders, all the stuff, your goggles, your suits, and then the llama would bless all of it, and then um, that now you're good to go. You, you've had your puja, and you're ready. For us, we have them bless our sigmas, our, our, our altimeters, our helmets, and if you look through some of the photos and some of the videos, you'll actually see that. The llamas come down in their beautiful flowing maroon robes, and it's about a 45-minute uh, ceremony that they have. Mm -hmm. They do all their chanting, and then at the end of it, we all get our prayer cords, and um, or our, our prayer knot cords. Everything is blessed, and then we're good to go for our our expeditions. That's something that extremely interests me about this trip because a you're you're a guest, so you don't want to be rude to to your host. But whether you believe in this lifestyle and this way of life and the way these people believe and think, why not expose yourself to their way of life? Why not immerse yourself in this situation and just understand where they come from? And I love how you guys have always embraced. I mean. You, there, there's a reason when you when you see these families, there's a reason when you see these people, they love and embrace you because you've embraced them first. Oh, absolutely. And it's true uh, of everybody. The, the few names I know from the regular team, I, I know of that same personality. And then I'm going to go ahead and assume the rest of them by default or guilt by association. So. Well, and, you know, and there's no... The last thing we want to do is talk about religion or politics, I'm, I'm sure. But I can give you some insight. No, we do plenty of it. <laughs> I, I've developed a really great um, appreciation for all religions through this whole process. Um, I was born and raised uh, Irish Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic upbringing. Still am to this day, you know, I still believe in God. However, uh, being out there, uh, the city of Kathmandu, the city folk, if you will, traditionally are Hindu by, by nature or, or by upbringing because um, Hindu, I believe, came over from India. That, like, basically, the city dwellers are all Hindu, and all the mountain, uh, all the mountain residents are Buddhist. So all the monks and lamas and sherpas are all Buddhist. And so, in the ceremony, the puja is a Buddhist ceremony that we have, um, and there's absolutely 100% harmony between the two religions, both city and and mountain, and. the The Buddhist culture is one of acceptance of all people, acceptance of all. Um, religions of all personalities, and so I always feel like I'm actually being a really good Catholic by experiencing a Buddhist uh, 
ceremony and being a part of that because it just opens up your eyes to this larger world. Yeah. But what I truly have taken away from this whole process, and I put it in the context of Star Wars, the Force. Well played, sir. Right? Thank you. There is an energy in the Himalaya, and I don't know if it's because of the granite, because there's so much stone, or if it's truly just a tuning fork for the universe of all things good, that there is an electric energy of... Uh, not religious energy, but a spiritual energy that passes through almost everyone that goes up there. And it's almost impossible not to feel it. And that, to me, has kind of been like the greatest um, spiritual awakening that I've had. You know, as far as all religions are amazing, all, all people are different, um, uh, different uh, walks of life are amazing. And as long as you're all focusing towards the same common good, giving back more than you take, then everybody's, uh, everybody's in, head in the right direction. And to illustrate that, one of the sermons, if you want to call it that, one of the stories that, that was told through one of these pujas, and it was all had to be translated because it's all done in, in the local Nepali dialect. So they tell a story of a young lama that had an amazing understanding of the text that he was reading, you know, um, similar to Jesus, if you will, you know, how Jesus had this understanding of the Torah that... This Lama, he was the golden child. He was the chosen one. And his job was to travel throughout the valleys and to go to all of the monasteries and basically teach all of the studying Lamas and monks the correct way to do things, and specifically how to chant the mantras, the Om Mani Pemi Hom Mantra. And so this young Lama travels from monastery to monastery, and he's teaching all of these other Lamas how to do it correctly, right? how to do, do it right. And so his last stop is this remote monastery. It's on the, across a major lake. He's got to row all day long to get across to the monastery, and he's exhausted when he gets there. They bring him in, and to his astonishment and his horror, he sees there's this 90-something-year-old lama who's chanting the mantras wrong. You know, they dedicate their lives to enlightenment, and here's this lama who's 94, 95 years old who is chanting the, the mantras incorrectly. And so the young chosen one is heartbroken because he said to himself that I've, this, poor, uh, this poor 94-year-old lama has wasted his entire life chanting. He's done it wrong his whole life. And heartbrokenly, he goes up to the old elder lama and he says, listen, I'm sorry to be the one to have to tell you this, but you're chanting the mantra wrong. And let me show you how to do it correctly. And the old lama graciously thanks him and accepts the training and says, okay, here's how it's done correctly. Thank you so much. And he starts chanting correctly. And the, the, the young chosen one lama gets back in his, uh, his canoe and he's paddling back across the, the lake, heartbroken of a life wasted, 94 years of this life wasted. And about a couple hundred yards offshore, he sees the old lama walking towards him on the water. And he walks up to the boat, and he says to the young chosen one, he says, I'm so sorry, please forgive me for interrupting you. My mind is not what it used to be. You told me the correct way to do this chant, but I've already forgotten it. Can you please tell me again? Can you please teach me one more time? So the young lama, the chosen one, he's in the boat. He looks out in the water. He sees that the lama's standing there walking on water, you know, obviously enlightened. And uh, he just looks at him and says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And that's how the story ends. But the, the point of the story was that it was the intention that mattered, not the action. You know, so this 
90-something-year-old Lama, his intention was to seek enlightenment. And even though he did it incorrectly, he still achieved enlightenment. And that's what I love the most about it, uh, that culture and about Buddhism in general, you know, that it's your intentions that matter, not your actual actions. You know, you can do something wrong and still get credit for it. And I, I love that story every time I hear it. I love, I love that what's, I have, we, we've talked about on the show, I have a very deep religious background. I don't know if you ever knew that of me. I went to seminary or Bible college. Okay. I was an I assistant pastor for at some point in my life, which is very opposite turn of where I am today. And the thing that I have a hard time with is people not accepting what you just said. We can have the, the intent is is a huge thing that matters. You know, we can have we can title ph- a religion and philosophy and life whatever we want to title it. But the bottom line is, is are you giving back more than you're getting? Are you are you helping others? Are you being a good person? And and, and how close minded so many religions or politicians or how how close minded people are to other ways of life. And that's the thing that interests me most about the Nepali way of life, about the the, the Tibetan and the, and the Buddhist way of life, is is just that the the, the message or the, or the way he was saying it wasn't necessarily a thing, but he was doing and living the right things. We don't have to agree to the right words; we have to agree to the right intent and the right direction in life. Exactly, and uh, that that makes it so much more interesting uh, of a life. The, the more I learn to do that over time, I think you've learned to do that very well over life as well. And I don't think either one of us have been great at it early on. Well, you know, one year, so this, this puja, typically it's attended just by us, our, our team, our staff of 20 or 30 people, and any of the, the locals that might live nearby, any opportunity to pray and to rejoice and be part of puja, they will, uh, the locals will, will join us. So on average, we might have 30 people. One year, we ended up with almost 60, like double our capacity. And normally, we actually have an Everest skydive llama. Um, he's this, he comes down every year and says our prayers, and he's part of our team, basically. He's got a million-dollar smile. He's just always happy to see us. And every time he gives us our puja, the weather is fantastic. So it's a really great relationship. But one year, about five years ago, we had doubled our attendance, and there, we came to find out that it was actually a younger llama came in uh, couldn't have been more than you know late teens, early twenties, and he was one of these chosen one. Uh, that's the only way to describe it: chosen one lamas. And what I mean by that is that during his puja, he went back and recycled through like eight lives because the belief of reincarnation. You know who he was, the prior life, who he was, the life before that. So literally going back something like six hundred years, he was telling stories from six hundred years ago in the first person of that life. He had gone through the, the chanting and the and the trance, if you will, to get himself into that state. And he proceeded to chronologically go from life to life to life, educating the current locals on the history of the region, of the invasions, the, the battles won and lost, you know, all these different life stories. Never having had access to the text of these historical events, he was entirely correct from the beginning to the end. So he had actually cycled through five or six of his incarnations and had spoke to the locals about it. And people were standing there like jaw dropped, you know, the, the locals. Uh, we didn't really know what was going on. It was explained to us after the fact. And afterwards, we were jaw dropped too, that it was kind of like a, it was a first person observation of the concept of reincarnation. Here he was going through all these prior lives and speaking about individual specific dates and times of events that he could not possibly have known about being 
late teens, early 20s, and never having had access to these historical texts, and he went through it, that was really an interesting moment of realization for me that there's a lot more out there in the world that we don't necessarily know about and like the mysteries of the universe and to be able to see one of them right in front of you occur like that. I said in the beginning, we don't sell a skydive. It's an experience. It's an experience of being out there and being part of this culture and this overwhelming, uh, this overwhelming exposure to the force of good, you know, this, this force that runs through the world. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing experience. And we skydive too while we're out there. And you, <laughs> and in this package, you're providing with skydiving. You're providing not just the rig, but also the the locally made jumpsuits. So if one yep. of us goes and make the skydive, we're going to get our jumpsuit out of the situation as well. That's correct. Yes. And also, you're providing the helmets because we, we need to use helmets equipped or ready to to use that oxygen system. Which I think you guys use fuels. Yep, I've been using fuels for the last three, four years. So in 2000 and 12 or 13, I was asked to take on the role of um, operations management. Just basically, I've been the tandem program director for Ever Skydive for 10 years, but about five years ago, I uh, was asked to basically just kind of, because of what I do in the industry and where I'm working and how I, uh, how I have access to different uh, companies and people and all the things that we do, I was asked to uh, basically take on the responsibility of organizing the program. And when I accepted it, uh, one of the things that I realized was that we had a hodgepodge of helmets that had been bought, donated, given to us over the first few years. And I really wanted to kind of standardize the whole process and give the customers the best possible equipment. So I've, always, I've been jumping cookies for pretty much since they came out, you know, and I just, that was my first thought was, I actually ran into uh, Jason in the APF conference a couple of years ago, or whatever year this was, Jason Cook, and started talking to him about it and said, you know, I really want to get your gear out here. And one of the things um, that I really am adamant about with support and sponsorship, didn't want them for free. I wanted to pay for them. I wanted to buy them because I believed enough in the product that whether we paid for them or not, we wanted them, you know, and I just wanted yeah. to make sure that, um, you know, our customers are paying for a service. I want to pay him for the service of getting those helmets. And so we moved to, uh, we moved to Cookie Helmets, um, yeah, four or five years ago, and haven't looked back since. They've been amazing. What about um, all? Why would, why would it not be? Why would why would not what what huh? It's absolutely the right the right decision. I think he's yes. uh, ag agreeing with cooking being a good helmet choice. Yes. Uh, altimeters. I I have altimeters that are thirty thousand foot altimeters. I, I have a, a little collection of L and B devices that do all sorts of weird things. If I show up, are you guys also providing the altimeter? Do I? Yes. Um, we give our guests the option to bring whatever gear they're comfortable with okay so if you had an altimeter that you were comfortable with you would just have to let me know ahead of time send me its specs let me take a look at it but we provide lmb um, alti tracks for everybody at the drop zone for the program now our alti tracks are the eighteen thousand foot alti tracks uh -huh. but our drop zone is twelve thousand feet so the thirty th when we go back to thirty thousand feet which we will next year it's all tied into the same, you know, it's still 18,000 feet. And we've, we've tested them. We used to jump with the MA-10s, the big bulky 30,000 foot ones. And again, in the beginning, we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know how things were going to react up there. And while we've had amazing support from LMB for the last five years, um, Mads Larson um, and Neil Brusgard, yeah, Niels Brusgard, they had uh, given us uh, support for 2000 and. 11 onward, I think they've been with us. But we've, we've also worked with Alti2 in the past prior to that, um, and they were fantastic as well. All these altimeters, today's modern gear, it's... Why would it not be? Why would what not be? Why would it not 
Who invited this guy? I, I did, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, the question. Okay. Um, I'm going to seriously. Well, though, there, are, there are some, you know, there are some. Um, Hold on one second. Hugh, I got to stop you for one second. For real, the, with the podcast part, you talking really does create five seconds of dead silence. And if you've ever listened to a podcast that has one full second of dead silence, people start looking at their phone like they're broken. So I, I appreciate your interjection, but you're. Let us get there. Let us. Uh, you keep talking. Actually, creates a lot of really awkward space on recordings. I'm sorry, but it, it does. Uh, so, why would it not be? Why would it not be the best choice or the best product? And and really, I I do have a lot of favoritism to certain gear. And people will say I have bias to gear because of my relationship with these manufacturers. But my relationships exist to these manufacturers because of the gear. Because of my bias to the gear. So. So, man, I'm going to actually, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to please stop, buddy. I'm sorry. I was trying to politely suggest it's, it's easier for us. Thank you. Um, so n now you're going to provide anything. I just show up to Kathmandu yep. with my clothes, with, uh, with, with what I need to basically survive clothing-wise, and you're going to have everything ready for Helmets, me. Helmets, goggles, gloves, um, comfortable shoes, and a jumpsuit. So we ask you to basically bring whatever shoes you want to you, – you basically jump in your trekking shoes, essentially. Okay. Whether it's Merrell's or Solomon's, um, yeah, whatever you're comfortable in jumping in. But yeah, we provide all the all the gear for the skydive. What and um, sorry, I'm just going back over that list. What about if I wanted to bring my GoPro and video the jump? Do you let jumpers wear a GoPro on these skydives? Can we bring our own cameras? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for that amount of money, uh, the last thing we want to do is is hamper your ability to promote yourself in social media. However, <laughs> we do have a couple of criteria that we we follow. And now the first one obviously is safety, meaning is a, the gear going to fall off? You know, because there's some random hand cam mounts that aren't very good. Others are. Mm -hmm. um, but really, what we're most concerned about, and I think any company would be is the ability to maintain creative control over the footage that you're providing. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in Everest Skydive and hundreds of thousands of, um, we'll leave it at that, hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in Everest Skydive and now a decade of experience of putting this uh, out there. We just want to make sure that whatever footage is put out there accurately represents what we're doing that makes sense so absolutely we, we have no problem with someone throwing up their own gopros and things like that but if they um i don't know if if the if it didn't if the camera didn't record well if it was if it's bad footage we're not going to take it from them but we're going to say you know the reason one of the reasons this is so expensive is we provide world-class photography and videography from wendy smith uh paul henry de and derek thomas three amazingly talented photographers mm -hmm. and videographers so we're going to get the best footage possible for them. But if they want to carry their own cameras, um, a hand camera, something for under, can under canopy, we're fine with that too. Personally, it goes back to the whole GoPro story. I don't give a rat's ass how soon I can wear a GoPro. I care when my friends can wear a GoPro. I don't necessarily need a GoPro with Everest because I want Wendy, I want Derek, I want these folks to be capturing the videos because I don't care what I see. I care what I look like in front of the mountain. That, yeah. That's what I want. What, what about jump requirements? What what are the minimums for me to come uh, be on this jump besides $25,000? So our traditional minimum is 200 jumps, 200 jumps experience to come out and jump with us. But that being said, no two people are the same. No two people have the same skill set, the same currency level. We've always been willing to entertain the idea of 
unique situations. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. Uh, last year, we worked with Complete Parachute Solutions, CPS. They've been mm-hmm. a really strong supporter of what we've been doing. Um, they've been able to use the Ever Skydive as a platform to evaluate high altitude landings for a number of different parachute systems up there. But they took on a really extraordinary project. Amazing story. Um, a gentleman uh, named Kalen, who works for a, a partnered company uh, called Magpul. They're a, a, they're a manufacturer of GoBang products. Uh, yep. Ma- I thought you said Magpul at yeah. first, but Magpul. Magpul, yeah. Yep. yep. High quality GoBang products. And so. I might have a grip or something. <laughs> Kalen went from zero skydives to 57 skydives under an incredibly, and this is, this is a Marine, uh, so the mindset is one of perfection, incredibly uh, focused training, dedicated to the task and to what he was going up there to do. CPS has a training facility in Arizona called TTF uh, in Coolidge, Arizona. So they took Kalen into this prototype program, if you will, Started him off in TTF and Coolidge, brought him up to Colorado, up to Leadville, um, and up to, I forget the name of the other facility we were at, but basically staged his canopy landings higher and higher, you know, up to 11, 12,000 feet. And I'm really, you know, I was thrilled to be able to, be, to see that. And so at 58 jumps, Kalen made his first solo jump over um, on Everest and landed at the drop zone. And oh, it was perfect. What a prick bastard. Yeah, he, I hate you, Kate. He was amazing. Uh, stand-up landing on the runway. I mean, every, he did everything he needed oh. to do to keep himself safe and to make this project uh, work. And so... Kudos to him. Yeah. I hate you, but kudos to you. And, you know, and kudos to CPS because they always gave us the outlet to, to shut it down if we didn't feel comfortable with it and invited us to be part of the, the, of the program of the, the train up to get him to that point. And so having seen him work from jump zero pretty much up to 57, we couldn't be, uh, we couldn't have been happier, you know, being able to, to be a part of that. So on a, st- on a standard basis, 200 jumps. That's what we've found to be uh, an adequate level of experience to, to do sport jumping up there. No two people who have the same currency, you know, um, if someone did 175 jumps in the last three months and they're super current, they're going to be better than somebody with 205 jumps over a 10-year period. You know, and we reserve the right to basically deny anyone the opportunity if we don't think it's in their best interest from in terms of safety. And we've always had a, an outlet for that. Would anytime there's a question with anybody around 200 jumps, if with any kind of question or concern, we will allow the the hop and pop to happen, which is our most basic stable process and if we're not comfortable with the results they can turn in their two sport jumps for a tandem jump and we'll still take them on a jump over mount everest they'll still get to fly the parachute still get the same experience but safety third right power first style second no no that's wrong wrong discipline safety first (laughs) with what we do and uh (laughs) yeah trust your ears somewhere in there and we've had we've had a fantastic uh uh outcome you know we've we haven't had any injuries in that capacity you know so we haven't had and it's uh it's great that the record we've had up there, given the height, the complexities, and, and even this last trip, we were looking back over 13 trips, uh, saying to ourselves, you know, we've had a, a essentially perfect safety record up there in terms of injuries. We haven't had any injuries. Um, if you could ever have you know, a perfect there was, so we, we, haven't, you know, we haven't had any injuries up there. Uh, now, there was 
in 2008, before we had taken on the project, before the project became ours, um, being Wendy, myself, and, and our Nepali counterparts, the first year there was, I believe, an ankle injury the first year um, on this prior company's program. But since we've had the program 2009 onward, we haven't had an injury. And as a result of that, it's because of these um, steps that we take. You know, So it's not a perfect science, but we kind of have that tuning fork. We understand who we can work with, how we can work with them. And truth be told, the 200 jump jumper is typically the rare sport jumper. It's usually the guy with or girl with 2,000 jumps. It's usually the highly uh, experienced, financially well-off uh, long-term uh, sport jumper that wants to come out and wants to skydive with Derek Thomas, wants to skydive with Omar El-Hejlan, wants to get photos framed by Wendy or PH, you know, so that's kind of the, the typical sport client is more in the 2000 range than 200 range. Make, makes a, a lot of sense. We, you've, you've, we've now made up to three jumps at Saibong. Did I say that even close to right? You can shake your head right now. He's drinking some water. Sidebong? No. Uh, no, I uh, said sidebong. No. I didn't say side. <laughs> sidebong, no. Um, <laughs> Sengboche. Sengboche. Yeah, you man. super close. I, I have looked <laughs> all right these names there. up and read them several times. Yeah. And yeah, dude, I knew this was going to be a brutal thing with uh, with pronouncing things for me today. And then from there, you guys actually have a uh, extended expedition that, that potentially goes back to uh, Amablama... <laughs> Yep, Ama de Blom. So Ama I was de, closer this time. Ama de Blom is Ama de Blom. one. So Mount Everest, to look at Mount Everest, it's an awesome force of nature. It's known as the world's highest peak, as it is. It's beside another peak called Lhotse. So the two of them together uh, create this indomitable view of the Himalaya. To the right of them, to the east, if you will, of the Himalaya, there's Ama de Blom. And Ama de Blom, if you were to throw a picture up there or Google search Ama de Blom, in terms of the mountains being goddesses, she actually looks like a goddess with her arms open, has an amulet on, in the center of the neckline, like a, a wearing a necklace with a centerpiece, and she's arms open protecting, her arms are open protecting the region and, and basically shadow, shadowing the, the Kumbu Valley. Um, and she's prayed to, she is a, a, another uh, goddess. Amada Blom is one of the more popular uh, peaks to summit. It's incredibly technical and challenging, but it's, it's not as technically challenging as uh, Mount Everest. So Mount Everest would be an 11, Amada Blom might be a 9.5. So it's a very popular mountain to summit. And it has a really nice base camp. Um, the base camp has a flat section about the size of a soccer field, or for those international uh, viewers, a football field. Um, hey, no, you can't smoke in that here, man. So, no smoking. Can't smoke that in here. Please put it out. Sorry. Uh, please put that out. Yeah. Um. So, we about five years ago we happened to be overflying the base camp, and we just. Like, you know, when you're driving in a car and you decide you want to stop and stretch your legs, we just told the pilot in the helicopter, just let's stop there, and we want to meet these guys and talk to them. So we talked to the uh, the base camp coordinators, because you never want to just intrude on somebody else's party. And we said, hey, guys, listen, you have this beautiful area here. We'd like very much to be able to jump onto here, bring our parachutes in. And we thought they would tell us just take off, man. We're, we're, we're hikers. I've, you know, we've seen the movies. These guys, are they're, they're <laughs> alphas. They're arrogant. They're not going to want us there. But they were bored out of their minds. They were sitting up there acclimating, you know, waiting for their time to go up the mountain. And they're like, parachutes? 
you guys are going to come skydiving here? Absolutely, you know. And so they wanted to see what we were doing. So we went back to our primary drop zone, packed up our shit, hopped in the helicopter, went back up um, like rock stars, if you will. You know, we'd shut the heli down. We got everything set up. And then we went up and we started skydiving there. And that uh, is, I believe, 14,900 feet MSL. So that became a secondary drop zone. And we probably jumped there five times in the last seven years. Uh, I've landed sport parachutes there and tandem parachutes there. Slightly higher um, descent speeds. I, I can't give you the math behind it, but it seems like they were landing faster at 15,000 feet than at 12,000. But still, good canopy pressure, good flare. Everybody had good landings. And uh, yeah, that that was AMA. We call it AMA. That's the AMA base camp. Thank you, AMA. I can do they that. just call it AMA. AMA, like motorcycles, right? Yes. AMA. And then we've also got a drop zone at 16,900 feet in a little village called Gorkshep. That's the last... Uh, outpost before ever space camp it's a dried up lake bed is and that the one that has the signs that say hot shower here you know all the little houses have the hot shower here okay. signs. Uh, they're all solar showers they sell them for three dollars or five dollars and yeah. after you haven't showered for three days it's a uh, pretty impressive i think the sign i saw said last hot shower yeah, maybe so is there one? if there was the last hot shower it would have had to have been in gorkship okay and so that's sixteen thousand nine hundred feet and that's also about the size of a um of a golf green or a, maybe a small soccer field and 2009, Wendy and I had landed just above that at 17,200 feet, and this was called the Kalpatar Plateau. It was an unofficial world record at the time. We didn't have Guinness with us, and I don't think any of us were Guinness the record or the beer. Um, <laughs> we didn't have any real sights on setting a world record. It was just something that became um, available to us to do, an opportunity. So we did it, and um, we had stand-up landings at 17,200 feet. It's the only time since we started doing this that I didn't know if flaring was going to do anything at all. You know, you kind of have a sense that it will, but flaring a Navigator 280 at 17,200 feet with oxygen un literally underneath Mount Everest in this little valley on the Kumbu Glacier, it was overwhelming. And, you know, we weren't sure. It, it was like landing on Mars. There was, you know, rocks and boulders and all kinds of crap we had to kind of navigate around. But uh, they were fast landings. You know, we probably had three to five step runouts, but they were all soft. You know, there was no foot slapping. We had full flare. We got good landings. And um, yeah, that was probably the most nervous I'd ever been flaring a parachute before, thinking we might just flare and just drive ourselves Bam. right into the ground. Nice. Um, it's like lightning, never hits the ground twice. <laughs> it never <laughs> hits the same spot twice. Uh, but they work great. And so once we knew that worked, then we realized that just below it was this lake bed, which was still technical to get into. But much more, um, much more practical to to fly into because it was flat and it, it was unobstructed. So we started taking people up there on sport jumps and jumping sport parachutes, and then CPS did some amazing things. Um, give a shout out to Fred Williams, he's the president of CPS. He jumped a ruck into this Gorkshep location with you know turbulent winds, snow on the ground, like the, the conditions were closing in on him and stand up landing. You know, he he nice. lowered the ruck, had a stand up landing with a, a military silhouette MS three thirty. I think he was jumping three oh three sixty, MS three sixty. And up until that point I had thought that the seventeen thousand two hundred foot landing was the most technical thing we'd ever thrown out of the, to the world in ever skydive. And then when I saw his landing uh, two years ago or three years ago, um, that to me, that's, I think, one of the things that I'm most proud of up there is to have been able to facilitate 
his ability to do what he did as opposed to what I did. What he did under that circumstance and that condition was, um, was at the time just, it was amazing, like heart-stopping to watch it happen. And I don't know if you know Freddie. He's um, yeah. he's just such a cool guy. Like he doesn't stress out about anything. Just go and get the job done, you know. And then fast forward to this last year. A uh, good friend of mine, Marty Rett from CPS. Um, he and I had the opportunity to land tandem parachutes up there in this Gorakshep Lake bed, and it wasn't quite the smooth landing uh, area it was the years prior. The, somehow boulders had either rolled down or emerged from the lake bed. There was horses and and yaks and all kinds of shit going on in this little bowl but we had the opportunity to go in there and and land them so um, marty was going to jump in on a tp 460 the tandem phoenix it's the military version of the uh sigma line of canopies the tp uh 460 he was taking in fred's son hunter williams who also works for cps and then i was taking in uh ted atkins he's our oxygen engineer who invented the oxygen systems that we use and Ted and I were going in under a, a TP400. Uh, I shouldn't say going in. Ted and I were Thank j- you. Ted and I were <laughs> jumping a TP400. So I think this is actually a pretty good story to kind of you know, wrap up my um, my experiences out there. So to land at 16,900 feet, the density altitude was 19,000 feet that day. Um, we couldn't fly into the drop zone because the helicopters at those altitudes can't have more than one or two people in them. And to take off, they have to be able to get off the ground. And you mean they don't have the power to take off with more than a couple of people? Nope. There's this. Wow. Yeah, they, they lose their their gross weight goes the gross weight of takeoff drastically reduces the higher you go. So like if we were going to take off from Samboche, we could put six people in the heli and we could take off and be rock stars. At Everest Space Camp, you can get two people. Oh wow. At, at Gorik Shep, you can get two people and a rucksack. You know, so it's like it really comes down to pound by pound the higher you go and the heli has to be able to not just lift off the ground but it has to be able to get a runoff to pick up its forward speed and i'm not a, a rotor wing pilot but they need to be able to move forward without crashing as opposed to just getting up off the ground you know um, so we were staging in this little village called farishay which was halfway between Gorikshep and samboche we ferried up four flights of gear and people from Sengboche at 12,350 up to 14,200 feet. And we had all our gear staged on the side of this river. There's yaks roaming around. It's all the local Sherpas are coming out, seeing what we're doing. And the plan was to do two or three sport jumps, if you will, or solo jumpers. Uh, the CPS guys had a few other of their, um, of their teammates had come in to jump rucks up there for high altitude stuff they were doing. And so there was, I think, let's call it five people on the manifest, five jumps and each one originated from Farishe. so it was pick up one of the first jumpers in his ruck fly over the drop zone drop them come back get the next one wow. pick him up and you're just sitting there waiting for your turn getting more and more nervous as each you know each rotation is getting closer and closer so marty um he went first with uh with hunter and i was so glad that that happened because one of the things that i'm most grateful for in this experience called Everest Skydive is the ability to share it with other people. Let other people take the lead in what we're doing. Like I said, I was more proud of Fred's landing at 16.9 with a ruck, stand up in in horrible conditions, than my landing at 17.2 under perfect conditions, you know, like I want to see other people succeed in what we're doing. And so so Marty went first. So he's got the uh, the record, if you will, of being the first uh, tandem into the 16,900 foot uh, 
landing area with a hunter on the front, and they landed a TP-460. So now Fred's the loadmaster or load organizer, and he's coming back down in the heli. And he lands, and now there's only enough weight in the helicopter for me and Ted and the gear. So I'm, I'm going to have no LO, no spotter. I have to spot myself and get out where, you know, over the drop zone. And it's about an eight-minute flight. So Fred gets off the helicopter. He walks up to me, and the, and the bird's spinning. You know, it's loud. And he just leans on my ear, and he goes, conditions are deteriorating rapidly. <laughs> That's encouraging. It's your call. Now, And you haven't seen it up close and personal. Nope. Yay. I'm going on nine years of experience, you know, and I know that we moved so many people up there that there's not going to be a, like, this is it. You know, we're, we're not going to shut down for the day and then bring everybody back up for one more jump tomorrow. This is our only opportunity to go and do this. And this is the moment we got to either go or no go. And I always used to say, I'm, I'm so proud of the jumps I didn't make, you know, like the yeah. <laughs> when conditions were marginal, but I was like, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to let the universe tell me what I should do. You know, imagine you got a $2 million helicopter burning fuel beside you. You got someone highly experienced, um, like Fred that you respect, and everything he's done telling you the choice is yours, but the conditions are deteriorating rapidly. So took a deep breath, um, had my goggles on so he couldn't see. I just closed my eyes for a second. And I said, Lord, I'm in your hands now. (laughs) And um, boarded the B3 with with Ted. And and I, you know, that little voice in your head, you know, your heart, your soul, I knew we were going to nail it. I just, I could tell... This was going to require every ounce of energy and every ounce of technical skill that I had up there, but I had nine years and at the time 12 expeditions experience to know that I could put this parachute down where I needed to put it. So we take off. We're flying along the ridge lines because we need the ridges to get the lift to get up to 23,000 feet. And yo, yo, don't smoke that in here, dude. Don't smoke that in here, please. Don't light that in here. So I told him, I was like, you know, for the tandems, we need, we need uh, 23, we said we needed 23,000 feet because that would have given us a 6,000 foot uh, exit. Technically below the SOPs. However, these were two licensed skydivers under military equipment. It wasn't the traditional Sigma. So we were operating under slightly different criteria. But I said, you know, I need 6,000 feet. That's just the minimum I want to get out with this thing because I need to be able to see where we're going. The landing area is the size of a soccer field. On one side, we have a mile-wide glacier that if we land in, we're probably not coming home from, you know, they'd have to, uh, they'd have to sl- sling line to get us out of the glacier, which would have been bad. The other side is the ice flow of Mount Everest. Then we've got this 45-degree angle uh, embankment called Kalapatar that goes up to 18,000 feet. So basically, there were no outs. This was the one time in my life in this location where you exit and there's nowhere to land but the intended target area. Anywhere else you land, you're going home like in an ambulance, you know, or a, a medevac flight. And we're spotting for ourselves. And we've got <laughs> oxygen and we've got, um, you know, like a limited visibility. But the pilot, uh, Maurizio Fellini, I've been flying with him for 10 years. Trust, I would have trusted him blindfolded to put me where I needed to go, you know. And you, you work with a team of people time and time again that you just develop an inherent trust in them, you know. And we did have a guy on the ground on a radio that if the conditions had gotten completely no-go, they would have called up to the pilot and aborted the jump, you know, would have said not Mm -hmm. to do it. And 
I was 50 50 that that's what I was going to hear. And I was kind of wondering if that was going to happen. And then eventually we turn on Jump Run and I get the, you know, two minutes. And I went, okay, this is it. We're, we're getting out 6,000 feet over Kalapatar, over the Gorakshep Lake bed. And uh, Ted, at the time, my partner, he had about 100 skydives up until that point. So I knew he was going to do all the things he needed to do. And I get one minute. <coughs> And I slide myself into the door. I'm, I'm looking. Now, imagine you have to spot a helicopter. Even though I've got GPS with the pilot, I still need to see where I'm going. So I'm trying to look over Ted, look directly below us. Um, and it's like I said, you work with the right people. I, I think that Maurizio just knew that I wasn't getting the visual I wanted. So he kind of slipped the uh, helicopter nice. and kind of turned it about 10 degrees, still in that same line of flight, so I could see below me. And I had it. I looked at him, gave him a thumbs up. He looked back at me, gave me a thumbs up, and out I went. You know, we had a smooth, clean exit, an exit that I still use today, uh, training uh, drogue throwing. I have a whole process of how to throw the drogue, mm -hmm. and I use this exit because the hand cam footage that I had shows this perfect throw to the side. The drogue is folded perfectly, thanks to Marty. Thank you, Marty. And you can see it extract all the way out, still folded, catch the, the, the relative wind beside us, and it literally does. It literally does this. It's just straight above us, and then it inflates, perfect in every way, shape, and form. I look up. I got a good canopy, or I got a good drogue, and then I immediately deploy it because we needed the, the canopy flight. So we must have been sitting in by like forty-eight hundred feet, you know, forty-five at the lowest. And now we have to land in this bowl. And like I said, there's a glacier, there's the ice flow, there's the Kalapatar ridge line. There's literally no place to land but where we're, where we're intending to land. And I looked down as we get lower. We had five wind blades. All five of them were pointing in different directions. <laughs> they were all pointing into the center of the bowl. And basically, you're, you know, you're getting that um, the, 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 the bowl was catching the wind. Just so eddying, just, whirling in there. Yeah, just massive turbulence. And uh, I was mm -hmm. like, okay, well... We're landing regardless at this point, you know. <laughs> um, so I set up for a long final. I just wanted to keep the wing level over my head. And you know, the way that the, that, that the area was set up, if I landed short, I had a walking trail about maybe two meters wide that I could manage to slide in on the, the, the trail coming in. And if I landed long, I was going into the, the glacier. So I said, you know what? I'm not landing long. I'm going to land into the wind. I'm going to land. Sh if I have to land short, I'm going to land short. So that was my, my basis. Yeah. And in landing short, I, attempting to land short, I put it down right uh, in the beginning of the lake bed where I was aiming for. And one of the other guys, um, Cody Carroll from Magpul, he was up on an embankment with a long lens. I don't know if it was 300 millimeters or what. But he caught this photo of me coming in with Ted right next to the Magpul uh, wind blade with, you can see the rocks, you can see the horse, because a horse just wandered out you know, in front of us. You can see the wind blades in all these different directions, and you can see the ground crew. It reminded me of when the Wright brothers, that famous photo where the one guy's running after the, you know, the, there's the guy with the camera, yeah. and then there's the guy running after them waving something. And all of that is caught in this one moment and, you know, safely landing. Um, we did slide the landing and I decided to slide it in and sit down rather than try to stand it up because I didn't want to accidentally step on ground that I thought was um, firm but ended up being soft. And then, you know, basically I didn't want to tabletop or face plant Ted. So I thought slide and landing is the best thing to do right now. Let's just land safe. And we had this smooth transition slide in right in the center. And when it finished, I was dead center in the middle of the lake bed. It couldn't have 
found a better place to land in this landing area. And I stood up, normally reserved. I stood up, you know, put my hands up like Rocky in victory. And uh, I still have those photos. I get a, a blown up one of the landing coming in with the horses and the Magpul sign and all the boulders and everything. And uh, that today, looking back, was the most technically challenging jump I've ever made. I would do it again tomorrow in exactly the same conditions if I had exactly the same people and the same team, you know, to support me doing it. And I think that to me is one of the the greatest parts about Everest Skydive is that we have such a great team and everyone in that team is empowered to make decisions. On this last trip, one of our guests said to me, I got a question for you, who's the boss? And I said, I don't understand the question. What do you mean, who's the boss? He goes, who's in charge here? And I said, well, technically I am, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm the operational director of the program, but why do you ask? He goes, well, everybody's making decisions. Everybody's acting in the best interest of the, of the team. And I said, well, that's, that's the, the leeway that we all have. Everybody's, every, we have our meetings. Every it's how ta- much we trust each yeah, other. Yeah, every staff meeting is making power decisions today. That's basically how each one ends. And everybody makes the decisions that they need to make to keep us all safe up there. And working with such a talented group of people for so long, Derek Thomas, uh, Wendy Smith, Omar Al-Hejelon, Dr. Ryan Smith, Ted Atkins, Paul Henry DeBear, um, everybody starts to learn each other's idiosyncrasies and learn each other's um, strengths and areas that we can support each other because nobody's nobody's perfect in every capacity. So we're able to support each other. And putting that group together for that jump up there and then on top of that having the the extreme professionalism, the razor-sharp professionalism of the guys from CPS that we work with, Marty and Kalen and uh, Cody, and all the support, that Fred especially, and all the support from CPS. I mean, I always say, like, incidents and accidents are the logical conclusion of a series of illogical... It's a logical outcome of a series of illogical acts and decisions, but the reverse of that is when you take the right people and the right environment and the right motivations and the right personalities and you keep adding all of this together, the logical outcome of that is the success that we continue to have year after year. So it's exhausting. Um, <laughs> I leave a part of my soul up there every year, I think physically and uh, literally and, and um, physically. And every year I look back, I look forward to going back there and collecting that part of me again and being whole again up on the mountain. So yeah, it's an exhausting expedition. Eleven years of or eleven months of hard work off the mountain, for one more month of even harder work on the mountain. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. If I want to get on this expedition, if I'm the average person listening to this or watching on Facebook, what's the website that people need to go to? It is www.everest-skydive.com. And all the info, I've been to the website recently, and all the information you need to know, including how I massively mispronounce names, yeah. are on the website. A lot of this information, a lot of my research was, yeah. was basically off the website. It's such an informative and well-detailed website. Yeah, it is a content-rich website. But yes. if anybody has any questions, uh, please feel free to email me at noonantommy at yahoo.com, N-O-O-N-A-N-T-O-M-M-Y at yahoo.com or find me on Facebook. I'm always happy to answer questions when people have, whether it's um, joining us for the skydiving, finding out about base camp or any, anything random about um, Everest. I want to make sure I got that right for one second. Noonan Tommy at yeah. Yahoo. And I've had that email for 15 years, and apparently Tom Noonan was taken, Thomas Noonan was taken, Tommy Noonan was taken, Noonan Thomas and Noonan Tom were all taken. The last no. option was Noonan Tommy. And I don't even go by Tommy. 
but it was the last one left on the Yahoo. I want to make sure I get that right because we're going to share it on, on some media a little bit later on. Noon and yeah. Tommy at Yahoo.com. Guys, gals, definitely check out Everest-Skydiving.com. Uh, look for Tom Noonan on Facebook. He's very easy to find. You can stalk him a little bit. There's some wonderful pictures out there on social media. There's some wonderful videos on there. Uh, any last things you want to say or share as we start closing out here? Well, first off, thank you for the opportunity to come here and hang thank out with you guys. You. I hope it was a uh, time well spent for you guys and your, your listeners and your viewers. I love talking about Everest Skydive. I love talking about the experience, what it's done for me and to me over the years. So whether it's Email, Facebook, if you see me on a drop zone, um, please come up to me if you have any questions or want to learn more about it. Uh, not even just to go, but just to learn about it. Let me know. I love talking about this stuff. One of my favorite things I've ever heard you say is something, I forget who you stole it from, but it's one of the silliest sayings I've ever heard you make, and you know exactly where I'm going. You are not awesome. You are a conduit of awesome. And the thing that you've always emphasized in life is... I get to do all these great things. Now, fuck that shit, man. I'm getting this dude this great thing. I am helping other people. And the thing that I've always known as I've known you is you're, you're so busy helping other people achieve success. You're so busy helping other people achieve happiness. And I really think that's a secret of why you're where you're at because you focused on others so well that it actually has helped you be that same guy. Well, I appreciate you saying that, DJ. And I frame it with the idea that everybody has an Everest. This just happens to be my expedition or an expedition that I was blessed to have fallen into, literally right place, right time, <laughs> pick up the phone. But everybody has goals and skydiving goals in life and things like that. And I, like you said, I take great pride and pleasure in helping people achieve their goals and, their, uh, and find their visions and path in the sport and in life. Um, I've done that with friends that have had crossroad issues with their jobs, what they wanted to do with the sport. And... Everest is just one of a million things out there that our people in our sport are capable of, of accomplishing. And if I can be of any service to anybody helping them with those types of projects, or whether it's an expedition, opening a drop zone, getting a coach rating, um, developing a, a jumpsuit or any, any kind of business, what, anything anybody wants to do to improve their lives in our sport or in general, if I can help them with that, that's what God put me on this earth for. To help skydivers. Yep. Mr. P, anything you want to close out with my friend? No, I just want to say thank you for sharing your stories. Uh, we, we, DJ and I have kind of worked together to figure out kind of some rules that we should follow for the podcast for content and time-wise, and we fall upon this, this two-hour rule a lot. Yep. And I was ready to let that go as long as you were. Well, That's so, that. so uh, we're going to be happy to have you back sometime if you ever want to share any, anything else. I, I know we're going to be happy to have you back here. It's about 99% right now that I'm heading out on a project called 777 in January. Seven jumps, seven continents in seven days. Uh, I'm taking a, my, my, I have a tandem partner. His name is Jim. We went, uh, he and I made a tandem jump onto the North Pole in April this past year on the geographic North Pole onto two meters of ice between us and the, the Arctic Ocean. So, Damn. Yeah, I'm going to be releasing uh, video footage of that in the next week or so. And, um, and then I've also just recently joined uh, Omar El-Hejelon. It's, it's his, uh, Luke, Luke Akins, Omar, and I forgive me, the third gentleman, I'm not, um, I haven't met him yet, but there's three guys have put together the 777 trip. And um, Jim and I are going to be joining them on that, um, making tandem jumps on seven continents in seven days. Seven tandem jumps, seven continents in seven days. And as a result of that, so I leave here on Friday. On Sunday, I'm flying to Australia. We love you, Julie. Take her with me. Good boy. Yeah, she loves it. 
we're going to Australia for a week so I can take the APF tandem course because I need to convert over to APF tandem so I can take Jim on a tandem jump on Australia in January. That's awesome, dude. Is that crazy or what? <laughs> I hope the timing can work out to have you come back and share that story. Uh, we have so many stories we can share with, with just our background and, and work, but these stories you stories have shared have been awesome. Thank you for being here. Guys and gals, we are taking next week off. Next week is Thanksgiving week. Um, I have some family coming in town, and, and we really want to just take the week off. We're working on our plans for the week after that, so uh, stay tuned. Keep an eye on Facebook. Till then, that is Mr. P. This is Tommy Noonan. I'm DJ Marvin. We're Gravity Lab Radio. Blue skies. We're out! Thank you.